Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Coming to the end of the third quarter. LeBron James, a shot in history, and there it is! LeBron stands alone! The NBA's all-time scoring record now belongs to LeBron James. Okay, so when we went to the game last week, I think we went to the wrong game, don't you think? Well, I was going to say, some people watched the State of the Union last night. Some people watched LeBron James breaking the scoring record. Were you doing both? Were you on the set going, yeah, and Wolf, yeah, and Don't tell LeBron, but I was asleep (laughs) by the time that happened. At 2.30. Did you get to watch? What a great, I didn't see it in real time, but he, tears in his eyes afterward. What a moment. Yeah. Remember when we were on the court last week, we did that interview with, um, with, Turner Sports yeah. with TNT, they asked us about that. And I got the note from from Kareem about, he's like, he said he was very proud. People thought like, oh my gosh, he'd be upset that someone is taking his record. But he said he was very proud. And he was on yeah. the court last night. Yeah, so. yeah. very graceful. What a night, right. yeah. here and there. Yeah, what a night. Oh, good morning, everyone. We're forgetting we're on television. You can see we're in Washington. The Capitol's behind us. And it's another big day uh, for Washington. The State of the Union happening last night. President Biden delivering his second address to a divided Congress. He was heckled and booed and kept the focus on issues impacting middle America. The highlights straight ahead on CNN this morning. Also this morning, survivors are still being pulled from the rubble in Turkey and in Syria. The death toll has now risen to 9,500 people from that earthquake. See the heartbreaking images that paint this devastating story. We'll take you live to Turkey. There's a lot to get to, but we're going to begin with President Biden facing a tough and at times downright hostile crowd last night. Watch. I'm not saying it's a majority. Look, whatever you thought about it, it was an interesting back and forth. We're going to discuss it, but the president stood his ground as Republicans heckled and booed. Some Republicans heckled and booed his State of the Union address. At one point, President Biden turned the tables and seemed to get Republicans to promise that they would not slash Medicare and Social Security. As we all apparently agree, Social Security and Medicare is off the, off the books now, right? They're not to be slashed. Tonight, let's all agree, and we apparently are, let's stand up for seniors. Stand up and show them we'll not cut Social Security. We will not cut Medicare. Let's bring in now senior White House correspondent MJ Lee. You can see her. Good morning to you. I'm sure you're bleary-eyed as we are, but it was a very interesting speech by the president, MJ. This was his first State of the Union in front of a divided Congress, and it really showed. 
It sure did, Don. In so many ways, it was such a different speech than the one that he gave in the two years past as he tried to turn the page on the first two years of his presidency by talking about the strides made over the last two years. But, Don, it was very clear that this was a speech meant to be about the future, as he told the American people numerous times that it is time to finish the job that he has started. Because the soul of this nation is strong, because the backbone of this nation is strong, because the people of this nation are strong, the state of the union is strong. President Biden seizing on a major primetime address to a joint session of Congress to reflect on the past two years. The story of America is a story of progress and resilience. And lay out his vision for the next two. Let's finish the job. Biden describing an inflection point for the country, arguing that the U.S. economy has made a turnaround. Two years ago, the economy was reeling. I stand here tonight after we've created, with the help of many people in this room, 12 million new jobs. That the COVID pandemic is now in the rearview mirror. Today, COVID no longer controls our lives. And also touting some of his major legislative accomplishments. I signed over 300 bipartisan pieces of legislation since becoming president. A notable difference from Biden's last State of the Union address, Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy seated behind the president. The new Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy. At times stoic as Democrats applauded the speech. Our democracy remains unbowed and unbroken. And at other times visibly trying to quiet his colleagues as they heckled Biden, including on the topic of entitlement cuts. Some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. the president insisting that he will work with the other party. There's no reason we can't work together and find consensus on important things in this Congress as well. Foreign policy also in the spotlight following the dramatic downing over the weekend of a Chinese spy balloon. Biden only making a passing reference to the incident and instead emphasizing America's readiness to compete with China. The guests invited to Tuesday night's speech by First Lady Jill Biden painting a story of some of the president's top priorities and challenges over the past year. Ukraine's ambassador to the U.S., a reminder of how much the war in Ukraine has tested and dominated Biden's second year in office. We're going to stand with you as long as it takes. Paul Pelosi, husband of former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who was violently attacked in his home and raised alarm about political extremism. But such a heinous act should have never happened. We must all speak out. And the parents of Tyree Nichols, a man whose death after a violent beating by police officers prompted outrage and grief across the country. Let's commit ourselves to make the words of Tyler's mom true. Something good must come from this. All of us in in this chamber, we need to rise to this moment. We can't turn away. 
And those moments where Republican members heckled the president, particularly when he accused them of wanting to cut Medicare and Social Security, well, White House officials feel like they couldn't have choreographed that better, that it helped paint that contrast that they wanted to make. And now the president hits the road to Madison, Wisconsin, to sell the message uh, that he painted last night. And what we see in the coming days will help to pave the way for a re-election announcement that we expect to see in the coming weeks. Guys. All right. Thank you very much, MJ Lee. Appreciate that. President Biden also talked about kitchen table issues, stuff you talk about at home, right? He talked about junk fees. Those are the hidden extra charges on things like hotel rooms, airlines, tickets, and entertainment. Listen. We're going to ban surprise resort fees that hotels charge on your bill. Those fees can cost up to $90 a night at hotels that aren't even resorts. We, the idea that cable, internet, and cell phone companies can charge you 200 or more if you decide to switch to another provider. Give me a break. We can stop service fees on tickets to concerts and sporting events and make companies disclose all the fees up front. And we'll prohibit airlines from charging $50 round trip for family just to be able to sit together. Baggage fees are bad enough. Airlines can't treat your child like a piece of baggage. That line. Let's bring in CNN's yeah. chief business correspondent, Chrissy Romans, when the ch child thing and the airplanes, I was sort of like nodding. But, I, yeah. you know, this is something that folks from both parties can totally get behind. Can they do this, though? You know, it's so interesting. This is a president trying to tell the American family, I feel your pain, right? You're being nickel and dimed, and I'm trying to give families breathing space. This is a bill called the Junk Fees Prevention Act. It's, it's proposed legislation, and the president trying to get both parties behind, behind it. And you can see what it targets there. Airline fees for sitting together with your kids, early termination fees for TV, phone, internet services, surprise resort and destination fees. And this is a, an endeavor that the White House began back in October when they told all the agencies, go find egregious fees, find the ones that appear to be unlawful. And in, in the terms of banking uh, fees, there were some banking fees that the Consumer Financial Protection Board found were unlawful and banned right away. So they're trying to get rid of these extra costs for American families to show people, look, we know you've got a lot higher costs. We're trying to help. Mm -hmm. So one thing we heard the president tout last night was record job creation, right? Millions upon yeah. millions and improving, not where we needed to be, but improving inflation. But the polls show people don't feel it. They're pessimistic about Biden. They're pessimistic about the economy. And this is something Don challenged the White House, Kate yeah. Bedingfield, on yesterday in that interview is how does he then change those minds? Do you think he did that last night? You know, it remains to be seen. He's going to go out in the country now and sell this State of the Union address. Uh, he had a big audience yesterday, and he said, Poppy, the word job or jobs 23 times. Uh, uh, we counted. And he also pointed out, rightly, that there's record job creation in his first two years in office. You can see that there are 12 million jobs created. In President Trump's first term, two years, it was uh, about four and a half million. And other presidents have lost jobs in the first couple of years. But people still just don't feel it. And I think there's exhaustion and wariness after the last three years of inflation and supply chain snafus and, of course, a death toll from COVID. So that is the kind of the, the tone that the president is trying to strike, an optimistic tone, but clearly trying to show empathy for families because he knows a lot of families aren't feeling an improving economy. Totally. And real wages haven't caught up that's with right. this inflation. So that's what they're feeling. Chrissy Roman, thank you You're very welcome. much.
All right, for more perspective on last night's speech, I want to bring in CNN political analyst Zolan Kano-Youngs, White House correspondent for The New York Times. You know, Zolan, as that heckling was going back and forth, Biden leaned into it. He almost seemed to kind of relish going back and forth with Republicans in the chamber. It's something the White House, in talking to White House officials after uh, the speech, they were excited about. Look, there's been a strategy since the change in dynamics in Congress, since after the midterms. Um, House, the Republicans taking over the House obviously makes it more difficult to pass legislation. We all know that. It's also somewhat uh, uh, provided the White House a little bit of a change in strategy here that they favor. And that's that they now have a foe to contrast their economic policies with. Mm -hmm. Um, I should say that not all Republicans are proposing to cut Medicare, to cut Social Security. Most aren't. But the fact that you just have, say, Senator Rick Scott, proposing a plan like that. The White House is now pointing to that, and you saw President Biden lean into it. Uh, This isn't just at the State of the Union. It goes back to a speech that he made in Virginia as well. And it's going to be a strategy that they use moving forward. They've been looking for a foe to contrast their economic policies with. And now, again, with a broad brush, uh, you saw him lean into that yesterday. you know, often coming into the op- coming into office, President Biden preached unity. He preached bipartisanship. You have seen a bit of a changing dynamic here with him being willing to really have a heated debate, even publicly, like yesterday. Uh, other, I want to play another moment where he got heckled and he leaned into it. Let's play it. Instead of making the wealthy pay their fair share, some Republicans, some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. Let me give you, anybody who doubts it, contact my office. I'll give you a copy. I'll give you a copy of the proposal. That means Congress doesn't vote. Well, I'm glad to see you. No, I tell you, I enjoy conversion. I'm wondering if it just worked out that way, but, you know, it's something most things in Washington just don't work out that way, or if it was designed to set him up, to get him to heckle him, and then to sort of lead him down the primrose path and say, okay, ah, gotcha, because, and then he answered what they're booing about. No, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's interesting with that moment there, too, because, you know, in the days leading up to this speech, when you talk to White House officials, they actually advised that he wouldn't lean in and kind of engage in uh, those, those kind of heat debates with the Marjorie Taylor Greene or other Republicans, because let's be honest, they expected that heckling, right? But also, I think President Biden, when you've seen his previous speeches, whether it be on foreign policy or domestic policy, he has shown that oftentimes he goes off the cuff and just does what he wants, just leans into his instincts, even if uh, it wasn't the advice that his advisors gave at that point. What does it say about um, Speaker McCarthy's control or lack of control Mm. over the party that he had to shush them a number of times that he went into the State of the Union directing them to act civilly? And then we saw a number of times just there Marjorie Taylor Greene saying and mouthing, you you lie, actually, and then liar. Remember, what was it 2012 with Obama's State of the Union? Yeah, that was such a big deal. Mm. It shows you how times have really changed. That's, right. like that's on a my different point. That was right such now. a big deal when one member of Congress yelled, you lied. Yeah, the state of just, uh, we often talked, I think, in the first Joe two Wilson. years of also the divisions in the Democratic Party when we talked about Congress, when Biden was trying to pass Build Back Better, when he was trying to pass that slate of legislative bills. But just looking at yesterday, you showed the challenge for Speaker McCarthy when it comes to trying to rein in his own party. 
I mean, I think yesterday was evidence that the divisions are still there and he really hasn't done it yet. Um, and I, we've seen little evidence that he's going to be able to, at least in the weeks to come. All right, Dolan, thanks for getting up early wonder, with us. Caitlin, if this, having watched it and sat there with, um, during, during Trump's, if this sort of makes, because Nancy Pelosi always is pretty much in control of the folks, if it makes him look like he is, doesn't really have power over his caucus or over this. But you know what I thought about? Remember that one time when Trump was delivering an address and she kind of went like that when they were trying to boo something yeah. he said? So there have been moments before where even Pelosi herself, you know, obviously she had a very different grip on her caucus, to your point, than McCarthy does. But it does show, you know, he told them beforehand. He asked them to be, you know, gracious and not to essentially do what they did last yeah. night. There was a lot of shh, shh, shh going yeah. on. Yeah. All right, Dolan, thanks for getting up early with us. So glad to have you here on set. Thank you. All right, also last night, there were several moments of the guests that you saw that President Biden brought, including Tyree Nichols' parents. They were in the audience. President Biden told Congress, quote, do something about police reform. The big question this morning, though, is, is there any path forward? More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Join us tonight are the parents of Tyree Nichols. Welcome. There's no word to describe the heartache or grief of losing a child. But imagine, imagine if you lost that child at the hands of the law. Here's what Tyree's mother shared with me when I spoke to her. When I asked her how she finds the courage to carry on and speak out. The faith of God, she said her son was, quote, a beautiful soul and something good will come of this. Imagine how much courage and character that takes. It's up to us, to all of us. I was a president last night addressing police reform with invited guests Ravon and Rodney Wells, the parents of Tyree Nichols, who recently lost his life at the hands of police in Memphis. Senior political commentator Bakari Sellers is here with us this morning. He's a former member of the South Carolina House of Representatives, and we're so happy to have you. This morning, good morning. Thank you for good coming. Good morning. Thank you for it. welcoming to your balcony. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I hope that um, what she says comes to fruition. Her hopes for this, that something good will come out of it. The president pressed Congress last night. He wanted to pass the George Floyd and Policing Act. He did not go far as far as many people wanted him, sure. uh, including Gwen Carr. Eric Garner's mother said, I wish that he had gone further, but this is the beginning. Uh, the George Floyd Policing Act would uh, increase restrictions on chokeholds, requirements for anti-bias training, creating a nationwide database for police misconduct. you think any of this will happen? No, I don't think any of this will happen. And the, the tragedy that the Nichols family will live with is the tragedy that we all will, is that uh, you go from George Floyd to Nichols to who will be next. There will be another family who gets a knock at the door and says that your loved one was brutalized by law enforcement, your loved one was beaten like Tyree Nichols or had a knee to the throat like George Floyd or, uh, or shot in the back or whatever it may be. These things will continue to happen mainly because of what you saw yesterday. That's the frustration people have with American, the American political scene, that you have people stand up and clap at your pain and trauma, and then they don't do anything when they go to work the next day. And we're not going to get any action out of this United States Congress on anything tangible uh, to change or reform the police in this country. Why? It's not all Republicans that are opposed to it. 
it's so that, that's why a good is question. this so intractable? I think there are a couple of things. One on the policy front, when you talk about things like qualified immunity, for example, that's a true policy yeah, argument. Some and, Democrats and, didn't. And there are a lot of us that. who say, well, let's limit qualified immunity. Let's we're, there's a little give and take. Tell there. people what that is. I mean, so I, I've been kicked out of court a lot of times on qualified immunity. And basically it's when a law enforcement officer commits an act and then they say I had the reasonable belief or fear that my life as an officer was in danger. And now, you say you're an attorney. So yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm, also, yeah, I'm also an attorney. And, and sometimes it's one of the more bogus. Uh, I just woke up and put myself in the line of danger arguments that's made, but yet that is a blanket immunity for law enforcement. But uniquely enough, one of the sticking points on criminal justice reform is the database. And right now, you can be a law enforcement officer and fired in Memphis, Tennessee, yep. and go join the police force in Nashville, Tennessee, or Columbia, South Carolina, where, where I'm living now. And so we need to have a database of bad actors. But the fact is, <clears throat> I was in a room with Tim Scott and Lindsey Graham and many of these families, and you can see that Tim Scott wanted to get this done, <clears throat> but he did not have the fortitude of other members of his caucus to get this done even on a limited scale back uh, basis. And that for me is the upsetting part. And it's even more tragic because you don't want the next knock at the door or the next hashtag to be sellers. And that's what a lot of black folk in this country feel like. You don't want to be that next hashtag or have a family member that is that hashtag. And that's a very real fear. Yeah, and the next guest at the State of the Union for that reason. It's this weird moment sometimes when the guests are there to see where to, to have them come this soon after and, and sit there. And the mother was so gracious. I mean, when she got up and she was saying thank you to the members of Congress as they were applauding, it was a, it was just remarkable to see them having that, that kind of composure. Dignified, you know. They shouldn't have to do this. That's, that's the entire purpose of this discussion this morning. Like, there should not be a black mother and father that have to come just recently, a week ago, burying their child and begging you to take action. And then you clap in my face and you go to your respective caucuses and you don't do anything about it. Like criminal, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, as much as we push, I have no faith that it's going to pass. That doesn't mean that I'm not going to come and work and continue to do it. That is the struggle. That is the cycle that we're in. My biggest fear, though, is that uh, the Wells family was here now. Who's going to be there next? And there definitely is going to be a next. There is only justice when this happens no more. Um, can we get to the Republican response? Please. Last night? Okay. <laughs> uh, because it was Sarah Huckabee Sanders delivering the Republican response. Last night. She claimed that Biden was hijacked by the woke left wing. Let's play it. Every day we are told we must partake in their rituals, salute their flags, and worship their false idols all while big government colludes with big tech to strip away the most American thing there is, your freedom of speech. That's not normal. It's crazy. And it's wrong. What do you think? So I, I didn't think this was a bad uh, response. I think that it's going to be consumed by right-wing media. I think that's what she wants. I think today on all of the conservative talk shows, it's going to play a lot. But it was utterly weird. It's, it's, as, it's as if she took every Republican talking point and, and, and uh, hot topic and word and just put it all together in one speech. And if you, close your, if you just close your eyes, this is a speech that Marjorie Taylor Greene could give. Um, this, is, this is a speech which is the, one of the reasons that the Republican Party has this fundamental inability to grow beyond that uber conservative base. I don't know necessarily what she was talking about or what America she was talking about. 
I, I, I said this sarcastically earlier, I'll say it again. She's done a great job of banning the usage of the word Latinx in Arkansas and, and examining their AP African-American curriculum and really tackling those issues that are affecting the pocketbooks of people who live in Arkansas. And so this speech lacked a lot of substance, but it's what Republicans want to hear. The unfortunate part is... Is it, though? I was wondering why they picked her, considering what happened. They got trounced in November, when the, the, at least the Trump right wing of the Republican Party. Um, when the, the Republican establishment and the Republican and conservative media are trying to minimize and I put mean, Donald who, Trump in the corner, why would they pick Sarah Huckabee first Sanders? First of all, she did, mention, she did mention Trump's name the entire speech. She did mention Trump at the end, though, talking about... She mentioned... She didn't say his name, though. She mentioned she mentioned him as the former president, yeah. right? But it was it was kind of... That was also kind of weird. She didn't go as... She was his spokesperson. Why would they pick... If because there was nobody else up here to do it, I don't believe. I don't, I don't think... I think a big part of it was that she's the youngest governor. The, the contrast and, was... And Biden is she oldest talked about president. That was her first opening yeah, line. It, but what was interesting about that is Biden's speech was so lively and he was so fired up, which is kind of sometimes <laughs> unusual for him. And hers was a little more muted. It was. And but you you see the contrast in age. She's she's 40. I think she's the youngest American governor. Yeah. Biden is is getting up there in age, to, to say the least. And so you saw that contrast. But it, it's I think that the the 20 percent of the country that's going to eat this up are the 20 percent who choose who the Republican nominee for president is. The rest of us look at that and say, look. You're talking about banning freedom of speech, and you all are the ones taking books out of classrooms here. I mean, you're talking about engaging in culture wars. I mean, you all are the ones who are, you know, don't say gay and passing legislation, which is nothing but rooted in culture wars. She's going to have a hard time breaking out of that bubble. But for those people who didn't know who Sarah Huckabee Sanders was or what she stood for. They do now. They do now. Yep. Bakari, thank you very, very much. Thank you. Ahead, we are going to be joined by the parents of Tyree Nichols. They were there at the State of the Union last night their hope for what could come from their tragedy. And we got to talk about what happened overseas, a devastating earthquake that rocked Turkey and Syria, leaving nearly 10,000 people dead. A live report from Turkey on the desperate search for survivors next. This morning, crews are racing, trying to find survivors in Turkey and Syria as the death toll from that devastating earthquake rises to nearly 10,000. Rescue workers are struggling to reach some of the worst hit areas. They are being held back by destroyed roads, a lack of heavy equipment and harsh winter conditions, including snow, sleet and rain. And temperatures are dropping to near freezing levels at night in Turkey. This image really says it all. That is a father whose 15-year-old daughter is now dead. He is holding her hand as her body remains trapped under the rubble. And in Syria, rescue crews found an extremely brave little girl called Maria comforting her siblings as they lie beneath the wreckage. And officials are particularly concerned about Syria, where more than four million people were already relying on humanitarian assistance. Let's go to our colleague, Jamana Karachi. She joins us live in Adana, Turkey, with more. Good morning to you. You were there in the aftermath, the hours after this happened. What can you tell us about the search and recovery efforts? Well, Poppy, search and rescue operations like this one behind me are continuing across the earthquake uh, zone. As we understand from Turkish officials, they say this is their top priority, as you can imagine. But of course, they are uh, facing all those challenges you mentioned here in Adana. The 
weather is a bit warmer, drier than other parts uh, of this uh, quake zone across these 10 provinces. But still, uh, there are a lot of challenges. Thousands of people, they say, have been pulled uh, from under the rubble, the uh, devastated buildings. But you've got thousands of buildings that have been flattened and destroyed. And the fear is there are thousands more who are trapped under uh, the wreckage. So this really is a race against time. Every second counts in missions like this to try and save lives. I can tell you here in Adana, you're not seeing the sort of wide scale destruction we're seeing in other parts of the quake zone. You see a lot of this. You see uh, buildings that are still standing that uh, have sustained little or no damage. And then you find buildings like this that have been flattened. We understand from rescue workers here and residents in the area that this was a 14-story residential building. They believe that about 100 people were living in that building. They don't know yet how many people were inside that building uh, when the quake hit. Uh, and unfortunately, so far, we're being told they haven't found any survivors. They have pulled at least 10 bodies out of the building uh, in the past uh, 48 hours or so. And I can tell you there was this moment uh, of hope uh, where rescue workers asked for quiet and this entire area, the machines stopped, the diggers stopped, everything went quiet. They were hoping, they thought that they had heard something in there, but turned out it was nothing. And they are continuing with this mission, a search and rescue, they say, and every second counts, Poppy. Mm. Yeah, Jamana, it's absolutely devastating to see that search underway. Thank you for that update. We'll stay with you this morning. Also moments ago, the Ukrainian President Zelensky arrived in the United Kingdom. This is his first visit there since Russia's invasion, only his second time leaving the country since that invasion began. We're live at Downing Street next. Welcome back, everyone. This morning, Germany says the Leopard 2 battle tanks it's sending to Ukraine will be ready to use by the end of next month. In his address last night, the president praised the U.S. and NATO allies' global effort to bolster Ukrainian forces against Russia's invasion. Putin's invasion has been a test for the ages, a test for America, a test for the world. Would we stand for the most basic of principles? We stand for sovereignty. We stand for the right of people to live free of tyranny. We stand for the defense of democracy. For such defense matters to us because it keeps peace and prevents open season on would-be aggressors and threatens our prosperity. One year later, we know the answer. Yes, we would, and we did. And as we just showed you moments ago, there it is, Ukrainian President Zelensky making his first visit to the UK since the invasion began. Those pictures from Reuters, London, moments ago of him landing there. So it's Nick Robertson live now, Downing Street with more. Nick, hello to you. What is expected during Zelensky's trip to the UK? Yeah, as you say there, this is his second trip outside of Ukraine since the war began. And remembering his last trip to the United States uh, came when President Biden announced the fact that the United States was going to commit Abrams tanks to Ukraine. That opened the door for the Germans to, to take that momentous step as well. And it seems a similar track here in the UK. The Ukrainian president coming here to Downing Street. Uh, he's already with the British prime minister. They're traveling in from the airport together right now, expected to walk up the street here 
here. The Zelensky is also expected to go and see Ukrainian troops training on the British Challenger 2 tank. The, the British were the first to offer tanks to the Ukrainians. But significantly, he is coming here at a time when uh, the, the host nation, the same with the United States with the Abrams, a host nation here, the UK, set to offer Zelensky something is not getting from other allies at the moment. The British going to expand their training program for Ukrainian forces, going to offer fighter jet training on NATO standard aircraft, not the planes just yet, but the training so that in the future, those Ukrainian fighter jet pilots can fly NATO standard aircraft. And also Britain is going to supply longer uh, range capability, capacity for the Ukrainians. And that's being understood at the moment to mean longer range rockets to reach deeper behind Russian lines. The HIMARS, the Ukrainians have always, always wanted that longer range version. It seems that the British are going to announce something similar with their weapon systems for the Ukrainians. So significant gets expected for uh, Vladimir Zelensky here. And crucially, um, as is done on previous visit, as he did with the United States, as well um, here in the UK making a speech later today to Parliament where he can expect a very, very warm reception done. Yeah, and we'll be watching Nick Robertson at 10 Downing Street. You know, last week, I believe, um, Caitlin and Poppy, we were just discussing what the United States is giving um, to Ukraine or sending to Ukraine. Never thought in a, in a million years that they would be sending. They say, well, we're not going to go this far. And then they go further, you know, and they send... Um, uh, bigger and stronger ar artillery there. So, and now the UK, now Tony, and now the UK is doing the same thing. Yeah, and sometimes it opens up that question of, well, if you now send it after initially you weren't, would it have been more helpful if they had sent it sooner? Sooner. And what will happen with the F-16 yeah. request? Okay, yeah. we'll be watching. Uh, coming up on CNN this morning, this moment. Ladies and gentlemen, the all-time leading score. You have witnessed it. LeBron James! Wow. Oh, wow. What a night. What a moment for him. LeBron James emotional after breaking the NBA's all-time scoring record. A closer look at this historic moment in sports next. I'm looking cream. I'm emotional. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Does this now make you the greatest player of all time? Are you now the GOAT? <laughs> Uh, you know, I'm gonna let everybody else, uh, you know, decide who that is or just talk about it. But it's great, it's great barbershop call, uh, talk. You oh know, for no, me, I, yeah. I want to hear you say listen, it, big Bron, fella. Bron. Listen, big fella. I, I, I want to hear you say it, Bron, Bron. Me personally, say it, Bron. I, I, me personally, say it you with know, your I'm chest, always, Bron, I'm gonna take Bron. myself. I'm gonna take myself <laughs> against anybody that's ever played this game. Um, you know, but everyone's gonna have their favorite. Everyone's gonna, you know, decide who they who, who their favorite is. But um, I know what I've brought to the table. I know what I bring to the table every single night, and, and what I can what I can do out on this floor. So, um, you know, I always feel like I'm the best to ever play this game, but you know, there's so many other great ones and I'm happy to just be a part of their, uh, part of their journey. 38,390 points. LeBron James wow. has now become the NBA's all-time leading scorer, surpassing Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. His record stood for nearly 40 years. Many thought that it could never be broken. Omar Jimenez is live outside the Lakers arena, which was sold out last night as LeBron broke the record in front of a home crowd. Omar, I know tickets were going for like $92,000 or something insane. I hope you put that on your uh, expense or your expense account. Yeah, yeah, straight on the corporate card. I figured, you know, who's <laughs> going to notice that, right? It'll slip right through. 
It's fine. <laughs> um, but like, you know, I, I got in the, the more fun way, which was through a press pass. So I got to be up close and personal with a lot of these insane experiences to witness an insane moment, a moment that many people thought would never come. But the people that showed up and tuned in on TNT came to see history and they got it. Westbrook with it. Give it to LeBron at the right. With a fade and a flick of the wrist, history. Turns, shoots, scores! There it is! All hail the new king in town! In front of friends, family, and fans, LeBron James becomes the NBA's all-time leading scorer. To be able to be in the presence of such a legend and great as Kareem, it, it means so much to me. It's very humbling. Um, please give a standing ovation to the, to the captain, please. Some fans were unsure this day would ever come, especially those that watched Kareem break the record. Kareem, and he shoot, shoots the skyhook over Mark Eaton. And, I mean, it was like yesterday that that happened. And I reflect back on what's happening now, and it's like, wow. LeBron now not just an all-time points leader, but also recently moving up to fourth in all-time assists. Obviously, this is a scoring accolade that we're talking about, but how do you think the other aspects of his game have complemented the scoring he's been able to do for, for such a long time? He's made his teammates threats. And when you have to account for others that you're on the team with, on the floor with in particular, you know, it, it allows you to operate more effectively. It's a dynamic that's played a crucial role in LeBron's road to history. One of LeBron's central childhood figures knew he was on a path to greatness from the beginning. LeBron's greatest gift is he can comprehend real well. And whatever you teach him, he, he applies it to his game. And it's still there, ever since he was eight, nine years old. And for those that know James off the court, they say his legacy will be bigger than the scoring title bigger than basketball, including through his LeBron James Family Foundation, among other things, helping the next generation go to school. From where you sit, what do you think this moment really exemplifies? A kid can do and be anything they want to be. To see that perseverance in someone that's so connected to who we are and what, you know, in our work and what we're doing and cares about us is doing that. It's a game changer. And on the court, the game has changed in the nearly 40 years since Kareem surpassed the previous record. The next waves of LeBron looking on. 16.8 points a quarter. Go ahead and get it. Go ahead. Some now wonder if LeBron is the greatest of all time. I mean, I personally think he is already, but I, I think they would submit him in his legacy as the GOAT. It's what many once thought of Kareem's record. Now, untouched air for the king. The all-time leading score, you have witnessed it, LeBron James. Wow. You know, Omar, I have to tell you, I'm not the jealous type. <laughs> But I, honestly, I'm very jealous that you got to be there because we did not get invited to that particular game. It must have been amazing to just sit there and witness what happened. 
look, it, it was it was unbelievable. And, you know, you, we saw that moment just as we came out of that piece there of when the announcer finally put it out there that LeBron James is the all-time leading scorer. You saw the emotion well up in his eyes. You saw the emotion in his family's eyes. This is someone who has worked so hard to get to this point and never thought that he would be the one to break what many thought was an unbreakable record. And by the way, just because he's broken this record doesn't mean he's going to stop. He said he's going to keep playing for at least two or three, maybe even more years, try to basically run away with this as far as possible so that people now say this is a record that will never be broken. So awesome. So awesome. Caitlin said she was getting emotional. I Poppy. mean, yeah. It's so special. Yeah. 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 Uh, How and can you not? Just, to see his family out there, and, and Poppy, as you and I were talking about, he's not afraid to weigh in on issues that he no. thinks are important to him. And well, who's ever going to forget his response to shut up and dribble? Shut up and dribble. And yeah. he's, I just love that this happened to such a good guy, Omar. That's what I just kept thinking. Like, such a guy who's given so much to so many others for so many years in, you know, Akron and beyond. Uh, foundation, yeah, you're right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that's the thing that, like, if you just looked at the basketball alone, this would be one of the all-time greats. But I think the reaction and the reception he's gotten to being the one to break this record shows he's about more than just someone who's dribbling on the basketball court. Yeah. Right on. You saw Kareem there. You saw Magic Johnson. Everybody uh, emotional. Congratulations to him. And congratulations to you, Omar. Yeah. Oh, and Jay-Z. Congratulations to Omar, I guess. All right, thank you, sir. We'll see you soon. Get some sleep. <laughs> Get some sleep. President Biden laying out his vision for America in his State of the Union address while getting heckled by some Republicans. How he handled it straight ahead. More CNN this morning to come after the break. Some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. Let me give you, anybody who doubts it, contact my office. I'll give you a copy. I'll give you a copy of the proposal. Oh, yeah. It was on last night. Good morning, everyone. Here we are in Washington, D.C., live on Capitol Hill this morning. Some Republicans jeering and booing and heckling the president, but Biden punched back during last night's heated State of the Union. We're gonna break down all the key takeaways with CNN analysts, and we're gonna to speak to lawmakers on both sides of the aisle who were there, plus this. rescued from the rubble, but countless people remain trapped and buried alive more than 48 hours after the catastrophic earthquake in Turkey and Syria. We'll take you live to the search for survivors as the death toll is now near 11,000. Also, we have updates in Memphis. The five police officers who were charged with murdering Tyree Nichols have now been accused of beating up another young black man just days before. We'll have more for you in a moment. But we're going to begin with the reason that we're here in Washington right now on Capitol Hill with last night's fiery State of the Union. President Biden tried to cut through all the noise and heckling as he challenged Republicans to work together with Democrats to help rebuild the economy and protect Medicare. Some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. Let me give you, anybody who doubts 
give you a copy of the proposal. That means Congress doesn't vote. Well, I'm glad to see you. No, I tell you, I, I enjoy conversion. Look, folks, the idea is that we're not going to be we're, we're not going to be moved into being threatened to default on the debt if we don't respond. <laughs> folks. So, folks, as we all apparently agree, Social Security and Medicare is off the, off the books now, right? They're not to be responsible. Folks, my economic plan is about investing in places and people that have been forgotten. So many of you listen to me tonight. I know you feel it. So many of you felt like you've just simply been forgotten. Americans are tired of being. We're tired of being played for suckers. So pass. Pass the Junk Free Prevention Act so companies stop ripping us off. Speaker, I don't want to ruin your reputation, but I look forward to working with you. <laughs> when police officers or police departments violate the public trust, they must be held accountable. Yeah. Folks, it's difficult, but it's simple. All of us in, the cha in this chamber, we need to rise to this moment. We can't turn away. Let's do what we know in our hearts that we need to do. Let's come together to finish the job on police reform. Do something. Do something. Ban assault weapons now. Ban them now. Once and for all. Fentanyl is killing more than 70,000 Americans a year. You got it. So let's launch a major surge to stop fentanyl production in the sale and trafficking with more drug detection machines, inspection cargo, stop pills and powder at the border. Make no mistake about it. As we made clear last week, if China threatens our sovereignty, we will act to protect our country, and we did. Joining us now, our congressional correspondent, Jessica Dean. Jessica, morning to you. What was the reaction like to the president's well, speech? Yeah, good morning to all of you guys. I think it's fair to say at this point, uh, last night's speech, uh, a messaging speech, it doesn't do anything to really change the state of play here on Capitol Hill. It gives Democrats a chance to talk about accomplishments and come out strong in, in defense of the president and in support of the president. It gives Republicans a chance to talk about uh, how they have a very different vision for what they want America to look like as we come upon the 2024 election year. So in terms of actually changing anything or uh, really making a huge difference in, in what we expect to see, it doesn't really do that. What it did do, guys, is it allows for really stark contrasts, as you all have been talking about this morning, as they talked about last night, uh, between the president and his agenda, Democrats and their agenda, and Republicans, specifically House Republicans. And we heard that back and forth that you were just playing a few moments ago uh, from people heckling him and screaming out uh, from inside that chamber last night. And some shushing. 
There was some shushing too. Wait, can I compliment yes. Jessica Dean's outfit for a second? <laughs> because you guys are wearing the same. Guys, <laughs> before I get to the shushing, I, this is the second time I've shown up on your show matching on one this of you. show. Don, you're next, so let me know what you're wearing. Uh, I'll be sure to wear it later this week. Uh, but yes, on already, the shushing. <laughs> you got me with the turtleneck already, so we're twinning. <laughs> It's good. I love the twinning. Um, on the shushing, we do know that 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 the House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, before they even got to last night, early yesterday in the morning, he reminded all of his members, guys, the mics are on. They are paying attention to what you're saying. Please be on your best behavior. We know Elise Stefanik, also in leadership, telling them the same thing. I think it's important to remember it was these hardliners we heard from, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Bob Good, uh, people like that, that it's not unexpected that we heard from them, but even still, Democrats really not liking that. We haven't heard from McCarthy. Of course, we'll be asking him about that later today. We yep. know you will. Yep. Jess. Thank you. You Thanks, look guys. great. <laughs> Thanks, guys. I would, I would have to agree with that. Um, let's bring in someone who is not matching, seated anchor and correspondent, Audie Cornish, but still looks fantastic this morning. Audie, I, we want to talk about everything with Biden, but I have to bring up the George Santos moment because we haven't talked about that yet, and it was one of the things that stood out last night, as and you this saw. this between Senator Mitt Romney. You saw Senator Mitt Romney and George Santos here on the floor as they were clearly making some comments to one another. I think we have that moment of them on the floor, you can see Mitt Romney in the bottom right corner clearly saying something. Of course, all the reporters in the room watched that. They had questions from Mitt Romney later what he said to him. Uh, he reportedly told him, you don't belong here. Santos said, go tell it to the 142,000 people who voted for me. And Romney later said he should be sitting in the back row and staying quiet, instead of parading in front of the president and people coming into the room, basically trying to shake hands with all the senators. I mean, I think that Mitt Romney has kind of positioned himself in the last couple of years to be someone who is outspoken. He's not he's not in the Trump camp. And so he's not afraid to upset that part of the party that Kevin McCarthy or others have to appease, essentially. Um, to, and he doesn't have to protect the power of the House. He's a senator. He doesn't care about that. Um, so he doesn't have to play nice with George Santos or sort of please him in some way. And that was reflected in that interaction. I believe, didn't he tweet it, um, Santos, saying, I just want to remind you that you're never going to be president or something like that. I think if you guys check it, but I think that they, so there, there, there it is. Hey, Mitt Romney, just a reminder that you will never be president. So obviously something happened. There. Yeah, and also it reflects the position George Santos believes he's in. He feels extremely comfortable. What did you think of the speech last night? Was that a here we go again, running again speech? He was so energized, more than we usually see, no? Yeah, I mean, I think if there was a kind of political talking point that was going to say that um, Joe Biden somehow is not kind of up on it, Last night was a performance of mental acuity. It's not easy to deal with hecklers in any environment, much less uh, the, the House of Representatives. I mean, he used that one of the moments on Social Security and Medicare to like make them all commit. OK, so you guys all agree with yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. And in fairness, Speaker McCarthy said out loud just like a day or two ago, those things are off the table. But the point of the State of the Union, in a way, is for the president to gather around and explain his messaging, right, and to set the parameters of the discussion. And by doing that, for the people who haven't been watching with bated breath all of these little minor congressional press conferences, it looked like he had sort of turned yeah. the moment on them. 
Um, and, you know, it's also interesting seeing this juxtaposed with the Republican rebuttal. Um, I know, Caitlin, you know that no one is more loyal to Trump <laughs> than this governor. Uh, but at the same time, you heard her argument was, look, a new generation is coming. And I'm part of that new generation. That was a message about Biden, but it's hard not to hear it in the context of Trump as well. Yeah, I, w I would agree. That's kind of been the code words that Republicans who don't want Trump to run have been saying. They were trying to draw that distinction last night, saying it's not about Trump, it is about Biden. There's a little bit of a thank you next vibe to it. Yeah, definitely. Thank you next. Do, do, uh, do you think that this was sort of a, a soft kickoff to 2024 for Biden? Um, it wasn't soft. I mean, he was explaining, <laughs> this is what I've done. This is what I'll do. We can do better. And if anything, it was uh, watching these two speeches, it almost wouldn't matter who the candidates were in 2024. This is, sentence caps, the argument, right? This is what Democrats would be able to run on, whoever that Democrat is. And Sanders, uh, Huckabee Sanders talking about woke fantasies and the education system and all these culture war issues, that's also what whomever the 2024 GOP uh, nominee would be talking about as well. So we kind of, if you're wondering what it'll be like, <laughs> you know, the next presidential election, these are the arguments in a nutshell. Speaking of saying that it wasn't soft, right? It wouldn't be, we wouldn't be interviewing if we didn't give a poll, right? And I know it's a snapshot in time, but the, the address comes on the heels of this Washington Post-ABC poll, found that 62% of respondents felt that Biden hasn't accomplished much during his time in office. He's about to go to try to sell you know, yeah. his agenda to the public. What do you think? Do you think that he's going to be able to convince Americans otherwise from what this poll shows? I mean, that's what a speech like this is for, right? We were hearing about these poll numbers going into the speech, and so this was his opportunity to set the parameters of the discussion um, and to do that laundry list. Now, it doesn't affect things like the cost of people's rent or, you know, these kinds of costs, um, but at the same time, it is his way of saying, look what we have accomplished. There is an actual list. Please pay attention to it. And that's the most important thing, right, kicking off the next two years. We always sort we follow these things a lot, right? And they get big audiences and everybody watches on television. Well, not that big, right? <laughs> that's, that's the problem with live TV events at this point. At this it's point, not right. that easy to draw that kind of audience. But does anything ever come out of it? If you, like, if you go back and you analyze the state, say the union addresses over the years, like what actually comes of it? Do they actually accomplish yeah. or get Yeah, not much, but consider it a pulse taking. I yeah. mean, we know what this House of Representatives is going to be like to work with the next couple of years based on the display they put on last night. Yeah. And we have a better idea of what his campaign could look like because he took advantage of his critics who have tried to portray him as old and not really up to the job, not quick on his feet. And he was definitely quick on his feet last night. I kind of like the back and forth. I know that some people think it's disrespectful, it's um, Parliament vibes. Yeah. Don't you feel like you're like in London kind yeah, of? Yeah. I dug it. I kind of liked it. I think people feel like there's maybe a little bit. I don't think that you should disrespect anyone or call them out of their name. Like a liar is a. The, no, the, not that, the, but I liked the interchange. Yes. Yeah, let's yeah. call it a vibe um, shift, though. Not <laughs> for a lifetime. Let's <laughs> be clear where the line be is. very polite, be very sort of staid, and there was the pomp and circumstance of it. And when someone yelled out, you lie to. Uh, the former president Barack Joe Obama. Wilson. That was such a kind of like, moment where yeah. everyone was. It was a very clutch the pearls moment, right. and now the pearls are out the window. That's what so, I was thinking. You know, last I think night. Biden just he uh, met people where they are. Right. Yeah. That's the fair. Term. Well yeah. said, as always. Audie it also Corner. speaks to his Thank comfort you. sitting yeah. in front of that. In very that room. much so. Thank you, Audie. Appreciate Thank you for it. Having me. Speaking of President President Biden touting his immigration policy last night, while Republicans just hours earlier slammed it 
at a hearing, a member of the House Oversight Committee, Congressman Byron Daniels, uh, Byron Donald. Donalds, excuse me, uh, of Florida, joins us next. More CNN this morning to come after the break. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. President Biden touted his new immigration policy during the State of the Union last night. It is designed to try to reduce illegal border crossings, which has really been a crisis for this administration. It would accept up to 30,000 migrants per month from Cuba, Haiti and Nicaragua and Venezuela under a humanitarian parole program. At the same time, migrants from those countries who arrive at the border without applying for that program may be expelled under what is now an expansion of the Trump era, Title 42. Here is what the president said about that last night. We've launched a new border plan last month. Unlawful migration from Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela has come down 97% as a consequence of that. But American border problems won't be fixed until Congress acts. If we don't pass my comprehensive immigration reform, at least pass my plan to provide the equipment and officers to secure the border. to citizenship for dreamers. Let's bring in Republican Congressman Byron Donalds of Florida. He serves on the House Oversight Committee. You guys had a really um, a he- hearing that made a lot of headlines on yes. this yesterday. So, so we'll get to more of that hearing in a moment. But let me just get your reaction to the president's new policy and what he said about it last night on immigration and the southern border. Well, the first thing is we would actually like to see the text of this, of this plan. We've not seen any plan come from the president. The issue dealing with uh, migrants coming from Venezuela, Nicaragua, they just put that in last month. But all you're doing is reallocating the problem he created I've when he came into office. The White House put out a lot of text on it on their website. All it's you're an doing is reallocating the problem. 42 in part. You're just reallocating the problem. What they've done is said, okay, you can come to an illegal point of entry as opposed to an illegal point of entry. But the surge of migrants at the border continues. It's just a reallocation of the problem he created. Well, they're at, it's actually in part 30,000 migrants can come through this way if they do the proper paperwork and vetting, et cetera. But it's also an expansion of Trump's Title 42, giving them more authority to turn them away at the border. And according to the Department of Homeland Security, it's working. From December to January of this year, DHS notes that of those migrants from Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, they've seen a 97% decline in the illegal entries. Just wait, DHS numbers since December. Yeah, that's exactly what I just said. They've decreased the number at illegal points of entry which is still massively up. The numbers last month are coming in about 150,000, 100,000 decrease, but it's just been reallocated to legal points of entry. The same asylum process that is massively expanded past anything America has ever done. So you don't think it's a good thing that no, illegal crossings in that way of this group is... You are, you're mixing metaphors now. The issue is not whether it's just illegal crosses or illegal crosses. Crossings are up massively. Where, how, how are the cities gonna, in our country going to be able to take in all of these new entrants? That is not consistent policy. Before the president came into office, your average intake was about 400,000, maybe 500,000 if you had a surge year. Since he's been president, 1.6 million entrants um, in 2021, 2.2 million entrants in 2022 and rising. All they're trying to do is shift the burden. That's all they're doing. The, the Homeland Security is saying, is saying that your numbers don't match up. So that, let's, let's move on because I want to ask you, isn't that the point of a plan 
is to debate it. You're saying that we want to see the we want to see the plan. The president put out a plan. Wouldn't a better response be, well, we don't agree with this, but we'd like to take this framework and work on it and try to make it better, rather than just saying it's not great, this isn't going to work. I want to see it. He's actually put something out and laid something out there for people to work with. Is it a better idea to try to do it? Well, two things. Number one, we were in oversight yesterday discussing this in particular. I know Homeland Security's numbers. Trust me, my numbers add up. I did the math yesterday in committee. We actually talked with border chiefs about it specifically yesterday. Number two, the president's immigration policies, when he changed border protocols, when he came into office, January 20, 2021, these are his executive orders. They have led to the massive shifts, the massive raises, and people crossing the border illegally. One of his own my question. Oh, wouldn't wouldn't it be better to try to work with the president instead of criticizing the plan, saying that it's not going to work, or you that something in the past has not worked? We would love to. But you actually have to secure the border. You have to take care of the issues. Like I said, isn't illegal that what he's crossings saying that he's trying to do? And you're, but you're criticizing something that's happened, that happened in the past. What he's saying is that I want to move forward and try to work with people. And you're saying, but, 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 and you're looking backwards instead of forward, like the people who heckled him and said, and he goes, wait, wait, I'm getting there. And then the next sentence out of his mouth is, we want to work on border security and try to work on these things. But you're looking backwards. Don, you have to look back at the policy changes. How can you ignore four and a half million people coming through the southern border and say, don't look back the last two years, let's just look forward. You, you have to have policy changes. You can change the policies. You can, you can say you that have you to have, have to policy changes. Okay, fine. You gotta now, have policy changes. No, he's reallocating the situation. He's not changed the overall protocols. He's just reallocating them. That's the point that we're making. If you go back to Remain in Mexico, which did work, if you actually go back to making sure you adjudicate asylum before somebody comes to the border, if you say to border agents, which was the policy under President Trump, President Obama, President Clinton, and President Bush, that they can make Listen, they can make determinations. I, I I don't, keep, I don't, I don't want to keep arguing with you, and I want my colleague it. to get in. But again, uh, is there an answer that says, instead of we don't want to look back, is there an answer that says, moving forward, here's what we can do? Moving forward, you have to give border agents the proper okay. tools in order to actually secure the border. The president has taken that from them. That's what he did. Okay, so in, in the future, you would like to see the president do what with border agents? I just told you. The, you have to give them okay, the ability well, to make make determinations of credible fear. That's you have to reinstate uh, this Remain in Mexico policy. Okay. You have to not give massive asylum proceedings, which, by the way, are taking six years to get through, and people go to the first hearing. So you're saying you're willing to work with the president on these policies to change them moving forward? The president has to actually make border changes. He's the only person that can do that, and he's not doing it. And you're willing to work with him? to do it. If they're credible changes, of course. There are two moments I want to ask you about from last night. One, speaking of the border and as the president was talking about fentanyl and what a problem that is in this country, which I think anyone would acknowledge. A Republican from Tennessee, one of your colleagues, Rep. Andy Ogles, uh, shouted at the president after he was talking about a, a father whose daughter had died as, as a result of fentanyl, shouted, it's your fault at the president. Say what you will about the heckling last night. Some people thought it was lively and added to it. But in that moment, was that appropriate? The president unilaterally changed border policy. The drug cartels are using his border changes to increase the uh, trafficking of fentanyl into the United States. Everybody, every measure has said this. Border agents have told us, I've been there four times, much, many more times than the president has been. I've been there four times. Here's the facts. Border agents have said the protocol changes have allowed the drug cartels to take advantage of border agents who are now processing paperwork 
so that you have fentanyl trafficking is up massively, well over 800 percent. I think we would all acknowledge that fentanyl trafficking is a problem. But do you think it's appropriate to blame the put the entire thing on President Biden and say it's your fault in front of a father who lost his daughter to that? If trafficking of fentanyl is up because of the president's changes, it is his fault. Who are we going to blame? You're going to blame members of Congress? Are you going to blame? Are you going to blame the father? You're not going to do that. The president made unilateral changes. The drug cartels have operational control with respect to drug trafficking because of the president has weakened our border agents' hands. Those are the facts. Don't I think blaming the entire fentanyl crisis on Biden is a stretch, but I'll move on. Overall, the moment last night as Biden was engaging with your Republican colleagues on Social Security and Medicare and McCarthy as well there, do you think that that helped Biden in that moment? Because that is the kind of the White House's takeaway is that it actually he took advantage of his critics in that moment. No. What are you even talking about? Joe Biden created this fallacy that we were cutting Social Security and Medicare. No Republican has said, said that. that. I read it on Rick no, no, Scott's no, 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 website. See, this is the problem because we're conflating. <laughs> right. He's been bringing us up Wait, for decades. Rick Scott introduced a plan that would. Go I got. Yeah. Rick Scott introduced a plan <laughs> that would have Social Security and Medicare and all other federal laws sunset every five years, and if Congress wants, it can be reapproved every five years. So I understand what you're saying, and the president said some Republicans, but you can't say that no Republican said that. Listen, we have, have we talked about structures to Social Security and Medicare? Of course. The programs go insolvent somewhere between 2023 and 20, 2035. If you do not look at those programs, you're not being serious. So you think Republicans well, hold on, should hold look on, at them? Hold on, let's make a clear point. The delineation is with respect to the debt ceiling. No Republican has said we're going to look at Social Security, Social Security and Medicare. No Republican. The president has tried to conflate the two to make a political argument. He is wrong. Here's what Ron Johnson said in Senator Ron Johnson in August. Social Security and Medicare, if you qualify for the entitlement, you just get it no matter what the cost. Because we got to turn everything into discretionary spending. So it's all evaluated. It's to your point, Caitlin. I'm going to make the point again. Social Security and Medicare must be studied. They go insolvent in less than a decade. I'm just, that's All the data says that. Newsworthy data. You have to look at that. Republican, you're, the House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy has said it is off the table when it comes to this specifically. To the debt ceiling? Yes, it's off the table. We've been saying that for a month now. The only person saying that we're talking about Social Security cuts is Joe Biden. He's been lying to the American people. No, no, no Republican on the Hill has said, hey, for debt ceiling, we're going to look at Social Security and Medicare. It is not true. I'm one of the most vocal members of our conference. I am telling you, not true. Kevin McCarthy has ruled it out, but there is a reason they brought it up and the reason that the president was able to use that moment last night. But, Congressman, thank you. You look bad in that moment, I'm telling you right now. That is your perspective. That is why we brought you on. Thank you for sharing that with us, especially on immigration as well. Sure. Thank you, Congressman. Thanks for coming. George Santos' constituents taking their frustration to Washington. Look at that. That wasn't the only drama on the Hill for the new congressman. We're also live in Turkey this morning where crews have been working day and night amid plunging temperatures to help find earthquake survivors. And here, excavators and bare hands in turn being used to try and get to anybody who might still be alive because the hours are running short. The light is running out. It is bitterly cold. This morning, the death toll and the devastating earthquake that struck Turkey and Syria has risen to more than 11,000 people. CNN is now at the scene where a survivor has been reached beneath the rubble 
Becky Anderson, I know that they have been trying to find this person for about 55 hours. What, what, did, what just happened? Can you give us the latest? What just happened was that we heard a cheer from the search and rescue team on the uh, rubble behind me here. These are locals, they are local search and rescue, and they are volunteers, people from this city who have just come to help. They've been at this for 55 hours since the earthquake struck on Monday morning, 4 a.m. local time. It's now afternoon time on Wednesday, and, and the, the, the sense of relief here amongst those who are gathered and certainly for those uh, search and rescue members must be absolutely extraordinary. That was an eight-story building. What they've done is they've been able to, over the last 55 hours, get through the rubble. It collapsed down to where you've seen they've got through to that floor and just in the last 10 minutes or so, a huge cheer from those staff up there as they actually get to eyeball what I understand is a family. It's a father with his two sons. I have to say, unfortunately, I know that the, the wife is there as well. And we are hearing that they believe that three people are alive. And we'd heard that we think perhaps that the wife has perished. Um, we don't know that for sure. But we certainly know that there has been sign of life from three. And in fact, this is the most remarkable thing. Under that rubble, for as long as they've been, they actually were able to contact the, rest, uh, the, the search and rescue team by cell phone at one point. That was about 12 hours ago. And they promised to recontact. They never did. And so there's been a real sense of sort of pessimism here. Um, and it's so heartbreaking. You need a heartwarming story for everybody across this region. You just, you just hope for these stories. Um, and they had thought maybe they weren't going to get it. But at this stage, uh, we're here. We're waiting to see whether we actually see them retrieving uh, those... Uh, those three men um, from here, the father and the two sons, um, and look, we'll, 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 we just hope it's going to happen at some point soon. Back to you guys. Yeah, Becky, absolutely. I mean, as the death toll has climbed, any stories like that, obviously we are hoping that they are able to pull them safely out of that. Becky, will stay with you on the ground as that search is ongoing. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh is also live in Turkey. Nick, what are you seeing as, as we are now learning about just how massive this death toll really is? Yeah, here in Cameron Marash, we're seeing a uh, shockingly mixed scene here. Behind me, locals digging with their bare hands have just uh, uncovered the body of what looks like a man from what I can see uh, here. And also, though, up on the heights of other rubble, they're digging furiously down in to recover what they think might be two living people inside there. But these hours slipping away in which they have a chance to pull off something joyful a moment of relief frankly bodies now lining along the side of the road a scene that uh, turkish president erdogan came through in the last hours or so to visit a makeshift tent city people here simply having nowhere to live burning the remnants of their homes last night to keep themselves warm a tragic scene here's what we've seen over the last 24 hours You can still almost feel the enormity of the tremors here. This is Kakamaran Marash, closest to the epicentre. One older neighbourhood shredded, its family warmth huddling on the street. Dolcek's father is trapped under the rubble here. Only his feet protrude. They can't get him out, but can cover his toes. It would be really nice, he says, if the government had come by. 
Turan retrieved his eight-year-old daughter, wife and daughter-in-law. Pray you never stand over so much of your life. Their final dignity from a carpet. Push down and there are glimmers of hope. These rescuers have spotted a 12-year-old, Mustafa, in the rubble and have to dig down to him. Further along, Ali helped them find his 65-year-old mother. She's in her bed down there, he says. We'll get her out soon. There is not much sign of government here, perhaps as the scale of this is all too massive. Dusk makes the dust and the immense bulk of the mess harder still. The cold, just an insult in the days of emptiness that lie ahead. And the news from the rubble is as often as bad as it is good. A body found here, carried out, and laid next to this man's nine-year-old daughter, Beren. <laughs> the black here hiding the intimate agonies buried in it. The stories with the wrong ending. But suddenly, there is a call for quiet. Hush. They think they hear a voice. A pause, and then the best noise. Joy. Rescuers think they might have found six people alive, but there are hours more ahead of checking. But nothing really goes to plan here, even the joy seems random. Where Ali's mother is being rescued, two young people are unexpectedly found and pulled out. A 16-year-old girl, apparently still alive. Extraordinary moment of joy. The kind of thing that really all of Turkey is desperately hoping and waiting for. But as the temperatures drop and time goes by, they've all become harder to come by. But extraordinary to see somebody pulled so healthily straight out of this building. Abdullah seems unscathed, almost untouched, by the tremors that altered everything else he emerges into. Now, since you saw that report, the body we were talking about has been removed. Uh, a Syrian refugee man, we're told by locals here, carried away in a blanket. But the pace of work of the excavators is so much faster. It does feel like they're looking for the dead here. And the possibility they might come across somebody miraculously surviving. Hope for that miracle still up there on high on the rubble here. But I've got to tell you, across this city, the devastation as you've driven around it, utterly staggering. So many buildings absolutely levelled. The body count startling. Caitlin, Poppy, Don? It's just devastating. Like Peyton Walsh, yeah. thank you so much. Well, ahead, the demands from George Santos's constituents as they protest here in Washington, D.C. So we showed you that tense exchange between Senator Mitt Romney and Congressman George Santos. There it is, right there. Constituents in his Cong in Congressman's district, meantime, they took a bus here to D.C. to protest. Our very own Eva McKinn has a report now. Fire, fire, New York, 
Long Island residents represented by Congressman George Santos. Bringing their frustrations to Washington. You were unfit for office. You fictionalized an entire resume. Your constituents are asking you to resign. And please stop embarrassing us. Traveling by bus to call on Republican leadership to expel Santos from Congress over his many lies and distortions. We have only one goal, and that is to have George Santos removed from squatting in our seat in the House of Representatives. Speaker Kevin McCarthy has so far resisted these calls. If ethics finds something, we'll take action. Right now, we're not allowing him to be on committees um, from the standpoint of the questions that have arisen. Santos says despite his constituents' pleas, he won't resign, even as he faces multiple investigations into his finances and falsehoods. That's their freedom of speech right, and I'll entertain a conversation with them every single day. I represent them all equally. Oh, we're stuck with having to... Congress to act responsibly. Where's George? Constituents delivered a petition to Santos' staff. And where is he? He won't even speak with us. And tried to visit his office for a conversation. How do you all feel that Congressman Santos didn't come out and speak with you? It's insulting. Outraged. It is absolutely insulting. Santos later seen leaving his office. I welcome the petition and I'll be corresponding with them in writing. And showing up at the State of the Union Tuesday night with a 9-11 first responder who suffers from a debilitating disease, bringing attention to an important issue. I ask my colleagues that we work together and find a solution and have conditions such as neuropathy be covered under the World Trade Center Program Act. But also highlighting scrutiny of one of Santos's claims, that his mother was at the World Trade Center on 9-11 and that she became ill as a result. She was in the South Tower um, and she made it out. She got caught up in the ash cloud. My mom fought cancer till her death. Immigration records contradicting that claim indicating she was in Brazil at the time of the attacks. That claim hitting close to home to constituents who were there. To see the deaths, to see the devastation down there, to see how many families were impacted, and for him to say my mother was there, it was important to me to voice my opinion to the Republicans who are standing by him to say you're not doing the right thing. This is not this is not difficult. It's a fraudster. You know, as we continue to cover the the Santos saga, it's really important to remember the constituents, right? Something that undoubtedly takes a hit when your member is embroiled in so many scandals is constituent services. A woman I met yesterday, she works with Afghan refugees. She says, listen, I work with federal lawmakers all the time. I don't feel comfortable working with my congressman because I don't trust his office with sensitive information. So this is something that we will continue to monitor. Yeah. Not often that you see the yeah. members, right, of the community, the people who voted for you, come out and say, no more. It's, it's not a common sight. Yeah. Thank you, Eva. I appreciate that. I had a new round of controversy for Joe Rogan. We'll discuss next. The podcast host Joe Rogan is now facing criticism after he pushed the anti-Semitic trope that Jewish people are, quote, into money. Here's what he said. 
Ilian Omar, where she's uh, she's apologizing for talking about it's all about the Benjamins. Yeah, which is just about money. She's, she's right. talking she about money. She shouldn't have apologized. She, that I mean, was I'll not. Go ahead that's not an anti-Semitic it. statement. I don't think that is. It's about Benjamins or money. You know, the the idea that Jewish people are not into money is ridiculous. Listen, that's like saying uh, Italians aren't into pizza. It's <laughs> f- stupid. <laughs> CNN meteor analyst and Axios meteor reporter Sarah Fisher is joining us now. Sarah, I mean, what are people saying about that moment? People are outraged, but at this point, people are are kind of getting used to this being a pattern with Joe Rogan. This isn't the first time that he's defended people who've made anti-Semitic remarks. Obviously, he's now coming out and making them. I think people are frustrated that Spotify hasn't said anything yet, but historically, they take their time to respond to these things. But you talked to Daniel Eck, who's the CEO of Spotify, about this. What do he say? Not about this specifically, but about about these bigger issues. Sure, this is something that Spotify's been talking about for a long time. How do they think about content moderation? Because they're not the same as Google and Facebook. They're a different kind of platform. Ultimately, obviously, they'll say that they care a lot about safety. But remember, they're a Swedish company. So they think about these things and how they play out in the U.S. a little bit differently. The one thing that distinguishes Spotify and Daniel from other tech CEOs is they take their time. You're not going to see some sort of rushed policy implemented today. They'll probably come out and condemn these remarks. Maybe they'll throw a misinformation label. And then presumably everything will just move on. I'm not saying that that's what it should be, but that's what's happened in the past with Joe Rogan. Yeah, can you talk a little bit just quickly about that? Because you said they'll just throw up a, a label on it. That's what happens. Like these streaming sites now uh, where you you know have to pay for the site, they're sort of the wild, wild west where you can say what you want. There are no standards and practices. And really, you don't have to answer to anyone. So basically, I, this probably will not hurt Joe Rogan and everyone will just sort of move on from this. It's definitely not going to hurt Joe Rogan. It's not going to hurt Spotify. They do have some policies, but you're right. Streaming is the wild, wild west of content moderation. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Uh, Our coverage of President Biden's State of the Union address continues. Next, I'm going to speak with the senior White House advisor, Mitch Landrieu, about how the president is feeling this morning, right after this. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Speaker, I don't want to ruin your reputation, but I look forward to working with you. (laughs) And to my Republican friends, if we could work together the last Congress, there's no reason we can't work together and find consensus on important things in this Congress as well. Good morning, everyone. Who said Washington, D.C. was boring? It was like a drama. I've been trying to tell everybody. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it was the real... What would you call it? The real Congress, the real lawmakers of Washington, D.C. A lot livelier. Yeah, a lot. Where's Andy Cohen? Yeah. Uh, I'm sure somewhere watching, taking notes, saying, I need to start this. Uh, Hey, we're here live in Washington with our coverage of the State of the Union, post-analysis, as a matter of fact. President Joe Biden heckled and booed during a speech uh, that he gave last night, but still insisting that he can reach across the aisle to get things done for the American people. We are going to talk to the White House in just a few minutes. Also, a moment that stood out last night, Senator Mitt Romney calling out George Santos and his lies on the House floor in the chamber after President Biden's speech reportedly telling Santos, quote, you don't belong here. Told you it was dramatic. Also, Manhattan's district attorney slamming a new book by one of his former prosecutors who once said Donald Trump was guilty of multiple felonies and who resigned after the DA failed to bring charges against the former president. That former prosecutor, Mark Pomerantz, will join us ahead. 
Well, we begin here on Capitol Hill after the State of the Union address last night. I'm not saying it's a majority. Let me give you anybody who doubts it. President Biden baiting Republicans at one point as he faced loud booing, heckling, shouts of liar from some in the GOP. But the president stood his ground on that point. At one point, he also appeared to get Republicans to cheer and promise that they would not make cuts to Medicare or Social Security. As we all apparently agree, Social Security and Medicare is off the, off the books now, right? They're not to be sponsored. All right. Let's stand up for seniors. Stand up and show them. We'll not cut Social Security. We will not cut Medicare. In a moment, we're going to speak to President Biden's senior advisor, Mitch Landrieu, to get the White House's take on how last night went. But first, I want to bring in our senior White House correspondent, MJ Lee, for a breakdown of last night. MJ, it's always notable to see, you know, when there's a speaker of the opposing party, which lines they stand up for, which ones they don't. Everyone was keeping their eyes on Kevin McCarthy last night. That's right, Caitlin. You know, the president tried to mark the halfway point of his first term in office by talking about some of the strides made over the last two years. Uh, but throughout the night, he confronted his new political reality of a divided Congress uh, as some Republican members uh, sometimes heckled him, booed him, even called him a liar. But the president tried to stay focused on the future multiple times, saying that it is time to finish the job that he has started. Because the soul of this nation is strong, because the backbone of this nation is strong, because the people of this nation are strong, the state of the union is strong. President Biden seizing on a major primetime address to a joint session of Congress to reflect on the past two years. The story of America is a story of progress and resilience. And lay out his vision for the next two. Let's finish the job. Biden describing an inflection point for the country, arguing that the U.S. economy has made a turnaround. Two years ago, the economy was reeling. I stand here tonight after we've created, with the help of many people in this room, 12 million new jobs. That the COVID pandemic is now in the rearview mirror. Today, COVID no longer controls our lives. And also touting some of his major legislative accomplishments. I signed over 300 bipartisan pieces of legislation since becoming president. A notable difference from Biden's last State of the Union address, Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy seated behind the president. And the new Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy. At times stoic as Democrats applauded the speech. Our democracy remains unbowed and unbroken. And at other times visibly trying to quiet his colleagues as they heckled Biden, including on the topic of entitlement cuts. Some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. Look. Still, the president insisting that he will work with the other party. There's no reason we can't work together and find consensus on important things in this Congress as well. 
foreign policy also in the spotlight following the dramatic downing over the weekend of a Chinese spy balloon. Biden only making a passing reference to the incident and instead emphasizing America's readiness to compete with China. The guests invited to Tuesday night's speech by First Lady Jill Biden painting a story of some of the president's top priorities and challenges over the past year. Ukraine's ambassador to the U.S., a reminder of how much the war in Ukraine has tested and dominated Biden's second year in office. We're going to stand with you as long as it takes. Paul Pelosi, husband of former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who was violently attacked in his home and raised alarm about political extremism. But such a heinous act should have never happened. We must all speak out. And the parents of Tyree Nichols, a man whose death after a violent beating by police officers prompted outrage and grief across the country. Let's commit ourselves to make the words of Tyler's mom true. Something good must come from this. All of us in, the cha- in this chamber, we need to rise to this moment. We can't turn away. And those moments where Republicans heckled the president, White House officials feel like they couldn't have choreographed this better. This was exactly the contrast they wanted to draw between Republicans and the president. And later today, we are going to see him hit the road to sell this message. And what we see in the coming days will certainly pave the way for what we expect to be a re-election announcement coming in the next few weeks. Caitlin. Yeah, he'll be taking that message to Wisconsin today. MJ Lee, thank you. And we said we'd get you to the White House with MJ Lee and others as well. We have a a quick snapshot for you of how President Biden's State of the Union address landed with people who watched. All right, here it is. A CNN flash poll shows 72 percent of viewers had a positive reaction to President Joe Biden's speech. Just over a third of them reacted very positively. That number is a bit down from last year, though, um, when viewers found, if you can see there on your screen, what they thought was very positive about it. So President Biden's speech was particularly effective with political independence. Before the speech, just 40% of independent voters felt like President Biden's policies would move the nation in the right direction. That number jumped to 66% by the end of the night. And so it is interesting to see how Um, People are reacting to the president's speech and also reacting to, in particularly, to his accomplishments. Although they they are many, he's up against headwinds uh, with the Republican Party basically obstructing everything. But he's been able to get something done uh, through bipartisanship, which most people believe would not happen. He has defied really all expectations. So let's get to the White House now. Uh, to Mitch Landrieu, a White House senior advisor and infrastructure implementation coordinator. He's also the former mayor of New Orleans and, as I say, my homeboy from the state of Louisiana. <laughs> so we're happy to see you this morning. Thank you so hey, much. Don. Listen, thank you. Hey, hey, as we say down south in Louisiana. Um, so, listen, went to the speech with the majority of Americans not thinking the president has accomplished a lot. Why is that and how is he going to fix that? Well, first of all, I think he went a long way to fixing it last night. I mean, your poll itself shows that 72 percent of the folks that watch the speech think that the president's proposals are going to move the country forward. The president was able in front of the entire nation to talk about the tremendous progress that we've made under the most difficult of times. He ticked that off with the war in Ukraine and covert and all of the work that we've done, passing the most significant legislation in the last 50 years, 12 million jobs, 800,000 construction gobs, the lowest unemployment rate in the country. And then he talked about finishing the job. Uh, and by the response of the American people, 
He basically tried to bring the country together, put a hand out to the Republicans in Congress and ask them to come together to make sure that we finish the job. And I think you will agree with me, Don, the president was hopeful, he was optimistic, he was confident, and he hit it out of the park last night for the country. Let me just ask you, there. I want to ask you about the heckling first I mean, in, a, in a moment. But let me ask you, because I said, how is he going to fix that? He's going to get out on the road. Members of the administration are going to get out on the road as well to tout the president's accomplishments. Are you one of those people? Yes, of course. I'm going to be okay. out there. The cabinet's going to be out there. The president's going to be out there. The vice president is going to okay. be out there. I think the president's traveling to Wisconsin today, and we'll continue to tell the story. But look, we're getting well, the money out said, of the though, door. We're getting the this. projects out of the this. ground, and we're making it happen. I ask you because of the, the whole infrastructure part of it. You know, it, it takes sure. time to build roads and bridges, and sometimes that do, doesn't come to fruition for years, even decades. The American people aren't going to feel that for a long time, probably after, or most likely after President Joe Biden is out of office. That's why I ask you, if you're going out there, how do you, yeah. how do you get that across? But, but Don, that's not, that's, not, that's not really true for all of the projects. We have 20,000 projects under information. But as we speak, you saw Deanna Branch, who was the mother of Aiden and Jaden from Milwaukee. We went to her house and there's work going on in the neighborhood where she lives right now to make sure that we get lead out of the water to help kids be safe in America because the president thinks everybody ought to have clean air and clean water. So we absolutely have projects and people will see them. But the more they come out of the ground, they'll see them more. The president's going to continue to talk, as are the cabinet, and the American people will absolutely give him credit for leading this country in the right direction. Yeah. Okay, so I've got to ask you about this as we have, the, I think that's a lawnmower or whatever is happening at the White House right now. There I have to cut so the grass, right? you got to give me a second. i got to get the grass. <laughs> you do do a lot. I'm not sure if grass cutting is one of them, well, but I'm I don't sure. Know. You never know. All right. There were some very tense moments during the speech that included some heckling from some House Republicans. Some called him a liar uh, at some point, uh, some points in the speech. What do you think about how the president responded and how he handled that? Well, you know, I was so proud to be a part of the president's team when he began by extending a hand in graciousness to the Speaker McCarthy and then to Mitch McConnell. He went out of his way to be open and inviting it wasn't surprising to me that he got heckled by some folks from the other side because that's what some of them do sometimes. But the president's response, again, was one of graciousness. The fact of the matter is the president told the truth, that there are significant numbers of folks on the other side that have thought about and talked about cutting Social Security and Medicare. Uh, Rick Scott is a senator from Florida who was responsible for running the Senate campaigns of the Senate Republicans, and it's actually part of the plan. I think that you could probably put it up so the American people could show it. So the, the point is that the president told the truth, but the most important thing that he did last night, or one of them, was he actually got the Republicans in Congress in front of the entire nation to agree not to cut Social Security and Medicare, which I think yeah. is a huge win for the American people. It's something that only a, a person who's experienced as him knows how to do. That was a masterful moment. Listen, I want to talk to you about climate change and other the, his comments on oil and gas companies, but let me just ask you, were you bothered by the heckling? Did it... Did it put you off in, in any way? Well, it's just it's just disrespectful. Um, and that's not the way that congressmen are supposed to conduct themselves when a president is speaking, whether they're Republican or Democrat. But you know what? Um, the president has said he's been around longer than most of us. He understands that. You can see the bigger point is that he handled it with grace and dignity, as we would expect the leader of the free world to, which just goes to show you that he's ready and he's up to the task of what he asked the American people to do is work with him to finish the job because we have more to do. 
The, the president called climate change an existential threat and also criticized oil and gas companies for not reinvesting in domestic oil production despite raking in record profits. But I just want you to listen to this moment from the address and then we'll discuss it. I heard it. I heard it. And when I talk to a couple of them, they say, we're afraid you're going to shut down all the oil wells and all the uh, oil refineries anyway, so why should we invest in them? I said, we're going to need oil for at least another decade. And that's going to exceed <laughs> and beyond that. We're going to need it. So what is President Biden's plans with fossil fuels? Is he acknowledging that the U.S. may need to depend on them for, for longer than he wants? And you said you heard it, you heard it. So go on, please respond. Well, I think, I think what the president was saying last night is something that everybody knows, that, that climate change is an existential threat. Don, you and I are from Louisiana. We're watching the coast wash away. We've suffered from Hurricane Katrina. And of course, everybody else in the country, whether it's the wildfires in the West, the water crisis, tornadoes, et cetera, we got a huge problem. And we have to build a clean energy economy. And we have to get away from depending on fossil fuels. Now, having said that, the president acknowledged last night that we're not going to get rid of using oil and gas in the immediate future. And I think that's the point that he was trying to make. And I think that the transition from where we are to where we need to be to make sure that we don't leave any community behind is critically important. States like Louisiana, oil and gas states, um, they're going to continue to pump oil for quite some time. But in the meantime, we have to get ready for the incredible challenges that are coming our way. It would be political malfeasance not to do that because climate is an existential threat. And putting your head in the sand is not going to make it go away. All right. Ms. Landrew, thank you. I think they need some help with the leaf blowing behind. So get I got to go finish cutting the grass. It. So let me get out of here. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. It's good to see you. Bye. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Let's bring in pollster and communication strategist Frank Luntz. Frank, you heard Mitch Landrew, Mitch Landrew there. What do you think about uh, his explanation for Biden's line on oil for the next 10 years? Uh, it was uh, there were a couple moments and that was one of them when I thought we've gone back to high school and this is not a good look for the United States. Uh, I was actually more upset over the social security line. Why? Because Kevin McCarthy had said the day before, and I quote, social security and Medicare are off the table. Mitch Landrieu had said 48 hours before, Medicare and social security are off the table to accuse the Republicans of sunsetting. So, and that's the word he used, you know, I'm a language person of sunsetting Social Security is wrong. It's equally wrong for the members, I know you've been playing it a lot this morning, to have heckled him the way that they did. And I was watching, because I was sitting in the chamber, I was in the, the gallery, and I watched the, the squad all sit together, and they were, it was almost like a party for them, whooping it up when they liked what the president said, and the Republicans jeering him. We're not parliament, and it sets a really bad example this is great if you're in London. It's not great for Americans, and particularly my students from USC are here. And I'm trying to tell them, don't treat people with disrespect. Treat people with civility. Even if you disagree, the State of the Union is the president's moment. Give him his moment, and then use the response to disagree. It is their house, though. Yes, but how we keep that house how we, determines how we keep the neighborhood determines how we react to each other. I, you, we have a rapport. I'm not gonna cut you off. I may disagree, and I know you disagree with me often strongly, but I'm listening and I'm trying to learn from it. And that's what should be happening in moments like this. Tens of millions of people are watching. 
and we shouldn't tear each other apart. But the president knows about social, he knew the language. And the two leaders of, of the Republicans in both the House and the Senate were clear about this. So for him to say that was not only provocative, it was dishonest. Even though people in politics do that a lot, twisting each other's words. And the thing is, Senator Rick Scott did propose that. He did put that on a website and angered a lot of Republicans. And you are right about what Kevin McCarthy has said. And McConnell, the and two they leaders, have been, yes. said, no, it's not going to happen. And but didn't, isn't it the Republicans' fault that the president has that kind of cudgel to use against them? Uh, it's the president's responsibility to seek a higher plane. He says he's for unity. Show it. And I was there in the chamber. I'm listening to his people walking out. It is less likely that we're going to have bipartisan cooperation after that speech. And that's a problem. Why? Because of what he said on Social Security and Medicare? Because yeah. of that or because of something else? Uh, it's that was the primary thing because they thought that he was so disingenuous that it really bothered them. We are Even with all his qualifications around are, it. Well, because he was listening to them booing him and he realized that he was being pushed back. At some point, we have to calm down. At some point, we have to look people straight in the eye and be able to tell them the truth. The truth is, the Democrats aren't always right. The Republicans aren't always right. Joe Biden has a record of accomplishment, but he also has a record of saying things and doing things that he was not supposed to do as president. Let's tell the entire story, which is exactly what you all have been doing for the last few months. But there are people who, uh, and you said, look, it works uh, in parliament, but it doesn't work. There, but there are people who also believe in America that there's too much decorum. People sit on their hands and they just sort of let things slide. The president pushed back last night. He seemed completely comfortable with pushing back on Republicans, heckling him and yelling things out. He's very comfortable being there. Is that, doesn't that say something about this president's maturity? His, um, he has been asking, he has been actually very bipartisan and to I, people I, who thought, like, hey, he's trying to work with Republicans way too much. It's interesting because you call it pushing back and the conversations I have with the voters because I wanted to be able to get their sense of it was he was yelling at them. Mm. We all see, see things differently, push back or yelling. Mm. You can play the segments. You can make that decision. He was yelling at them. Yelling at them, yes. And, and in the end, you're supposed to feel better about your country after, say, the union than you did before. I think we've gone in the other direction. Frank Lance, thank you. Thank you. Hey, Frank, let me ask you, because you said, but I'm sorry, pardon me, pardon me. What would you have, how should he have responded then if you said he was yelling? I would have looked at them and actually would have asked them a question. Really? And then I would have gone and given the evidence for either the oil or for Social Security or the deficit coming down. I would have gone point by point by point rather than, than yelling. Didn't he do that? No. He, he went the point by point on the deficit. He did not on Social Security, and he did not on energy. All right. Thank you for entertaining that. Thank, Thank you. you. Sorry, Pop. Oh, it's okay. Thanks for joining us, Frank. Thanks, Frank. Uh, and hi to your students. We see them behind the camera. <laughs> Pretty cool. Senator Mitt Romney calling out Congressman George Santos, reportedly telling him, you don't belong here. And he shouldn't be in Congress, and uh, they're going to go through the process and hopefully get him out. And, uh, but he shouldn't be there, and, and uh, if he had any shame at all, he wouldn't be there. Mm. Coming up, we'll be joined by a Republican congressman from Santos' neighboring district. More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
Senator Mitt Romney telling embattled Republican Congressman George Santos, quote, you don't belong here. That's according to a member who witnessed this tense exchange that you see here, which happened on the floor last night. After the president delivered his State of the Union, Mitt Romney was asked about what he said to George Santos. He criticized him for standing so close to the aisle that the president walks down. I didn't expect that he'd be standing there trying to shake hands with every senator in the president of the United States. Given, given the fact that he's under ethics investigation, he should be sitting in the back row and staying quiet. He says he, uh, you know, that he embellished his record. Look, embellishing is saying you got an A when you get an A minus. Lying is saying you you graduated from a college you didn't even attend, and and he shouldn't be in Congress. Joining us now is Republican Congressman Nick LaLota of New York. His district borders George Santos' district on Long Island, and he is a member also of the Armed Services and Homeland Security Committees, attended his first State of the Union address last night. Let's start with George Santos, though. Is Mitt Romney right? Mitt Romney is right on this one. I've been clear on George Santos for months now. He does not deserve to be in Congress. He's lied time and again. He's shown no remorse. He's broken the public trust. This is an institution that should be filled, filled with folks who have strong ideologies, who want to fight for those ideologies, who want to get results. He's all about the rhetoric. He's all about the drama. And he's fallen far below the standard that we all should, should hold ourselves to. Romney was saying basically he, he shouldn't have been standing so close to the aisle that the president walks down, cabinet members, Supreme Court justices. He should have just quietly sat at the back of the room. Do you agree? He's a sociopath, George Santos. He looks for that attention. Even the negative attention drives him. It's become an embarrassment and a distraction to the Republicans in the House. We want to focus on our commitment to America. We want to talk about putting our economy back on the right track, securing our border, holding the administration accountable. These are the things that Republicans campaigned on. These are the things that Republicans want to govern on. And every time I have to come to something like this and talk about George Santos, I can't talk about what Republicans ought to be doing instead. Yeah, well, let's talk about what did happen last night, because there was quite a back and forth between the president and Republicans. I know this is your first State of the Union, but you've watched them before. You seem normally they're pretty state affairs. Do you think this is the new normal of what State of the Unions look like? Well, the reaction was pretty strong from the conference when the president chose to spread something that is totally untrue. He's been saying, like others have said, falsely, that Republicans will make some sort of move on Social Security and Medicare. We've been out there, the Speaker's been out there for days, if not longer, on that is absolutely not on the table during these debt ceiling discussions. We've made that position clear, and yet during the State of the Union, the President chose to profess that lie again, and it was quite disappointing. Was it a mistake for Senator Rick Scott to make that proposal as he did last year because it gave Biden that opening to use it last night? I think every member, right or left, is entitled to make their proposals, and then it's up to that member afterwards to get a consensus of his or her conference and maybe even across the aisle. Some of these proposals that, that come down the way don't get a lot of support, and that's one of those ones that did not get much support, and it shouldn't be any sort of measuring stick for the other party to criticize us on. One thing, McCarthy has said they are off the table. He came outside the White House and said Social Security, Medicare are not going to be tied to these negotiations. I think some people have rightfully raised the question of is that something that he can stand by, given, of course, he has to, to deal with your entire conference and please a lot of the members. We saw the speakers fight when you're confident that that is going to be the line in the sand. They will not touch those. I know there's not 218 votes for that. I'm not sure if there's two or three votes for that drastic draconian change. 
Last night, the president was calling for work on immigration, for police reform work. Is that something that you think Republicans can work with Democrats on to actually get done? Well, we heard from the president one decent thing. He said he was committed to putting more technology on the border. I think that those words meant something to a lot of the Republican conference who campaigned on securing our border. We would welcome that. I think there's also needs to be discussion on physical barriers and process and ensuring the secretary promotes an environment to ensure that the CBP and others can ensure that we, we enforce those laws. But it's a small step in the right direction. On the heckling overall and the back and forth, not just on the Social Security and Medicare, because it happened other times when it came to China with Marjorie Taylor Greene, when the president was talking about fentanyl and had a father in his guest box who lost his daughter to it. There was heckling from the members, one blaming him for the fentanyl crisis, Marjorie Taylor Greene on China. Is it appropriate for members of Congress to heckle the president? So I think that we need to get to a place where we have proper decorum, a place where we can actually disagree on ideas and not just shout back and forth at each other. I hope that's the future in this town. I know there's a strong portion from this side of the aisle who wants to get to that place. I don't think those one or two incidents necessarily reflect the, the future of where we're going. Did you do any heckling? I did. I, I was upset when the president lied about his statement on Social Security and Medicare. What did and you I say? was vocal about that. I booed the president during that time from New York. We call it the Bronx cheer. When we see something that we don't like and certainly something that somebody was lying to us in our own house, we're going to give some feedback then. So I hope the next State of the Union, the president's more truthful on those key issues. So when you have that line of decorum, you're saying basically that you can be vocal and loud when you disagree with what he's saying. Well, it's unfortunate the president would choose to engage in that rhetoric. And I think he, I don't know why he did it, um, but I think he was right to expect a reaction. Maybe he even did it for that reaction. I hope that's not our future, and the president needs to be truthful at key moments like this. Yeah, well, at the end, he, he had that moment where he got Republicans saying, you know, when he said, yeah, we all agree, no touching Social Security and Medicare. Is that advantageous for him, though, or for Republicans? It seemed advantageous for him, according to the White House. What's most important is it's as advantageous for the country, especially seniors. Congressman, thank you so much for joining us. I know you and your wife attended last night. Appreciate your perspective this morning on George Santos and all of this. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right, Manhattan's district attorney and one of his former prosecutors are continuing to spar over whether or not they should have charged former President Trump with multiple felonies last year. I bring hard cases when they are ready. Mark Pomerantz's case simply was not ready. That is Alvin Bragg firing back at Mark Pomerantz. Poppy is going to talk to him next. He's the prosecutor who resigned because of that decision. Welcome back. A fight between prosecutors over whether or not to charge former President Donald Trump with financial crimes is spilling into public view, all because of a new book from a former Manhattan prosecutor who was working on the case. That former assistant district attorney is Mark Pomerantz, an expert on white-collar crime with a ton of experience prosecuting and defending organized crime cases. Pomerantz says that if prosecutors were looking at similar evidence against anyone other than the former president, charges would have been brought in a, quote, flat second. He also compares Trump to John Gotti, the head of the Gambino organized crime family. The book gives a searing criticism of Manhattan's current DA, Alvin Bragg's decision not to bring charges last year, a decision that Pomerantz resigned over one year ago this month. But Bragg says that, quote, Mr. Pomerantz's plane wasn't ready for takeoff and that it's appalling that he insulted the skill and professionalism of our prosecutors. Pomerantz's book about his time on the investigation, The People versus Donald Trump, an inside account, is out now, and he joins us live. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Thank you for having me. 
It is a riveting read. Uh, and it's a really important read for everyone to understand what you saw, what you did, and what didn't happen. What I find interesting is that you didn't used to talk to journalists. You're known for saying, I don't leak, right? Now you're out here with wanting to tell the world this story. Why did you write this? Well, I wrote the book because it was an important story to tell. Uh, however one feels about Donald Trump, he is one of the central public figures of our time. And if, as I came to believe and as others came to believe, he committed crimes, there was a substantial case to be brought, and he needed to be held accountable for those crimes, uh, that's an important issue, and I thought it was important to tell, uh, the, to tell the story. You know, Mark, there were several prongs to your investigation that largely focused on the overvaluation of a number of key properties to get favorable bank loans. But also, your That's investigation right. uh, included the, those hush money payments. You call the failure to move forward on those fronts a failure of justice. Why? Well, I, I thought it was a failure of justice because measured by the standards that prosecutors typically apply when they're deciding whether to bring criminal cases, uh, Donald Trump uh, was guilty. We concluded that he was guilty. Uh, every single member of the prosecution team uh, thought that uh, his guilt was uh, established. Uh, I actually went around the room asking if anybody thought that he was innocent and there were no dissenting voices when we had our meetings about this. So we thought he was guilty. We thought we had evidence that was legally sufficient to establish his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. We thought we had a reasonable prospect of winning the case, of persuading a jury. You can never be certain, and this case was not a slam dunk. And right. there were aggravating circumstances. Uh, so uh, I and others, including the former district attorney, Cy Vance, thought it yeah. was appropriate to go forward with the prosecution. Even you yourself uh, had told Cy Vance, I believe, and Alvin Bragg, look, we've got about a 70% chance of convincing a jury on this stuff. So not, not a slam dunk, but it was, you were counting the book, December 13th, 2021, when Cy Vance, the former Manhattan DA, authorized you to move forward here with, with criminal charges. My question to you is twofold. Why didn't he do it? I understand Bragg was coming in, but Cy Vance could have done this, right? Well, and why do you believe Bragg didn't? Sure. Uh, with regard to the timing, as I talk about in the book, we were working flat out. When we got toward the end of 2021 and the end of uh, Cy Vance's tenure, we simply couldn't get it done uh, and done professionally and well before the end of the year. Uh, I am sure he would have liked to have had uh, the job finished during his term. But we thought it was more appropriate to do it right and get it right and not to have the timing uh, controlled by uh, a decision of uh, uh, the calendar uh, in terms of when one term began and uh, one term ended. Uh, with respect to the different decision that was made by the incoming district attorney, uh, I can't speak in detail about what went through his mind. I can surmise from uh, what happened at the time and statements that he's made uh, since that he had misgivings about the strength of the case. And what I take from it uh, is that 
In these circumstances, when the stakes are so high, uh, it's, it's human nature to look for an overwhelming case, a case where everything suggests that a jury must find uh, the defendant guilty, that it's a slam dunk. And that's not the standard we apply uh, in the great run of criminal cases. One can argue that it's a standard that should be applied uh, to a former president. But my judgment, as I explain in the book, was that uh, princes and paupers, uh, presidents and uh, uh, anybody else should be held to the same standard and that you shouldn't be looking for a super abundance of evidence beyond proof beyond a reasonable doubt when you make the decision about going forward you talk about the argument of going slowly and methodically getting all your ducks in a row before you do something that's never been done before right no president has ever been indicted for criminal conduct let's talk about what's happening now because in your book you say that this decision by Bragg and the team was a legal equivalent of a plane crash, but the principal cause was pilot error. Uh, but now, what we've learned from reporting is that Bragg has been presenting evidence to a grand jury related to these hush money payments to Stormy Daniels. Do you still feel that way? Is this still a legal plane crash? Or do you see him doing now, at least in part, what you wanted to do then? Look, I, I hope the investigation goes forward. Uh, I hope that it results in a prosecution because I think the evidence uh, was there. I don't know that the facts have changed at all. Uh, perhaps we'll see over time. Uh, but if uh, the district attorney makes the decision to go forward, that's a decision that uh, I would welcome. I believe it's warranted by the evidence. And I wish him well in that endeavor. This is not a, a personal issue or a fight. It's a disagreement about prosecution policy. Just, just one final question. Sure. Andrew Weissman, who you know served as lead prosecutor for, for Bob Mueller, um, actually called Bragg's decision uh, courageous and not one that would be politically beneficial to him, his decision not to move forward when you wanted to. The District Attorneys Association of New York uh, has a pretty harsh response to your book, Mark. They say that a former prosecutor speaking out during an ongoing criminal investigation is unfortunate and unprecedented. They say that you've upended the norms and the ethics of prosecutorial conduct. And I wonder if you are sure, right, there was a fight over this, whether you should be even out there saying these things given the ongoing investigation. Are you sure this won't at all interfere with the ongoing investigation in grand jury right now? Yeah, look, I wrote the book in part because I believe there should be a prosecution uh, that uh, Donald Trump did commit crimes for which he should be held accountable. The last thing I wanted to do or would do was get in the way of an investigation or a prosecution. And I'm confident I didn't do that. The investigation, the prosecution, if it comes, will be decided based on the law and the facts and nothing I wrote in the book changes either the law or the facts that will be available uh, to the prosecution to prove its case if, it, but, if the case goes forward. But since you haven't been in the office for one year or just finally, how do you know that? How do you know that those things haven't changed and that it's not interfering? Well, I know that uh, the facts that I described in the book were not secrets that were being shared uh, for the first time. 
the facts surrounding the hush money, the facts surrounding the financial statements are facts that were in the public domain. On the financial statement front, those facts were summarized in a complaint that the New York State Attorney General filed yep. and summarized in over 200 pages the details of the case. On the hush money side, uh, the facts have been public uh, for literally years. Michael Cohen wrote about it in a book. Uh, Stormy Daniels wrote a book. Uh, the federal government brought the case against Michael Cohen. The information was out there uh, for everyone to see. And my discussing it in the book and expressing my views and my conclusions does not get in the way of any case that might be brought. Well, Mark Comrance, as I said at the top, it's a totally riveting read. And we learn a lot that, that, that we didn't know about what happened inside. So thank you very thank much. You. Thank you very much for having me. Well, from the former president to the current one, President Biden making his pitch for police reform, revealing a conversation he had with the mother of Tyree Nichols, the man brutally killed by the Memphis police. She said her son was, quote, a beautiful soul and something good will come of this. It's up to us, to all of us. Welcome back, everyone, to CNN This Morning. And this morning, there's a disturbing new development involving the five former Memphis officers charged with murder and the police beating death of Tyree Nichols. A new lawsuit filed Tuesday says that they assaulted another young black man just three days earlier. I want to get to CNN's Nick Valencia live for us in Memphis this morning with more. Nick, good morning to you. What does this man say happened to him? Yeah, good morning, Don. 22-year-old Monterius Harris, who is a U.S. Navy veteran, alleges in a federal lawsuit that just three days prior to nickel stop, he was assaulted by the Scorpion unit, which included the same five officers now charged uh, in the murder of Tyree Nichols. He says that he was in an apartment complex waiting for his cousin to come outside when he was approached by men in ski masks who initially did not identify themselves as police officers. He claims in this lawsuit that he thought he was being carjacked and tried to get away. Police say after they arrested Harris, they did find a handgun and some marijuana in the car. Harris claims in this lawsuit, though, that police falsified the report and made no mention of the assault on him. He says he was kicked, punched, and dragged across the concrete. In this federal lawsuit, he is pursuing $5 million from the city of Memphis as well as the police department. And, Don, this comes as the fallout from Nichols' death continues. It was yesterday that the city attorney here says that they expect to dis discipline seven more officers in the death of Nichols. Don. All right. Nick Valencia in Memphis for us live this morning. Thank you, Nick. By the way, I need to tell you the parents of Tyree Nichols joined the First Lady Jill Biden as a guest at the State of the Union last night. Nichols died after being beaten by Memphis police officers while he was handcuffed. So joining us now uh, to discuss all of the issues, uh, Senator Cory, Democratic Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey. He serves on the Judiciary and Foreign Relations Committees and has been working on police reform legislation for years now. We're so, by the way, the parents are going to join us in just a little bit. We're so happy to have you. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. I, I, um, I'm a little upset. I thought you would have had me earlier on the show when you guys started this morning show. You kind of like waited for, you know, kicked me way back. Not for all. lack of invitation. Yeah. But listen, uh, listen, you, have, you are, we're happy that you're here. Thank you. I'm, I'm you are outspoken on these issues and I know that they are very very important to you because we have discussed them and you have discussed them. You have led legislation, tried to uh, put forth, forth legislation. What did you think of the parents of Tyree Nichols getting a standing ovation last night, the mother standing with a tear saying thank you to the folks? 
I mean, th that was a powerful moment, and a powerful American moment, uh, where both sides of the chamber, everyone stood up and recognized that this is wrong. But her plea, a mother's plea, of let some good come out of this, please let my child not have died in vain. Um, she looked at us with a yearning heart to do something about this in response to this horror. And you're talking to Senator Tim Scott again about potential police reform, right? You know, Tim and I are, are, are friends. Uh, we obviously are different sides of the aisle, but we have done a lot of good together on criminal justice reform in the past, opportunity zones, HBCU funding. So he and I have never stopped talking. We both have personal experiences that are very frightening in our encounters with police when we were younger. Um, Lindsey Graham uh, is somebody I've already talked to as well. So we are trying to find a way forward, but let's be clear, this Congress will be harder than the last because now we have a divided Congress. I don't know what, uh, where Kevin McCarthy will want to go, if anywhere, on this, but I'm not going to give up because I know a lot of these get into the news, but there are stories like this happening with too much frequency. Mm -hmm. And the police leaders I talk to, um, uh, head of the major chiefs, uh, even the head of the FOP, know that we need to do things to restore public trust and create more transparency in policing. Yeah, Kevin McCarthy had a pretty stoic face during that line last night when President Biden was imploring Congress to get the job done on police reform. If there is going to be a deal, does qualified immunity still have to be part of it? You know, I'm of the opinion now that there is so much Republican opposition to doing that, even though, again, people like Lindsey Graham have said positive things about reforming it, that there should be some consequence if you break the law. No one should be above the law. But I'm of the opinion now, let's see what we can get done. It may not be the comprehensive bill like a George Floyd bill, but I want to get something over the line. Again, in a harder Congress, I don't want to uh, create too high expectations, but we're looking at smaller measures, uh, not as comprehensive of a bill. The, the reality is like we did with the gun bill. I was really proud to be a part of that, with, uh, led by uh, Chris Murphy to help get in more resources for community violence intervention. It's a bill that wasn't as far as people who believe we should have universal background checks or believe that we should have a, a ban on assault weapons, but it made America safer. We made strides towards a safer country. We've got to do that in the realm of policing now as well. So I know that you're optimistic about this because this is near and dear to your heart, but realistically, considering the makeup of the House and the Senate right now and the pushback that you're getting from Republicans, as Caitlin pointed out, just sort of stoic and just sitting there, no reaction when the president is talking about this. Do you really believe that something is going to happen now? So I will always be a prisoner of hope. I'm in this job not to give up before you try. Uh, I have seen impossible things happen even in my 10 years in Congress. So I'm going to keep fighting. But yeah, absolutely. We couldn't get it done after George Floyd um, we had an impasse, but now we have the House of Representatives controlled by Republicans, led by McCarthy. But what, what a moment of hope. Everybody wants to divide this country. And in this town, there's so much of trying to accentuate or manufacture outrage, pit us against each other. There was a human moment in that chamber that I felt. I didn't hear as much as I felt it when both sides of the chamber looked up and recognized the grief, the, the agony of, of, of parents that were standing in the gallery, that no American should ever have their child handcuffed, beaten to death, that this is something that we as a nation are better than. And when I hear police leaders, because they're part of the coalition that we've been building for now two plus years, when I hear police leaders saying, we need to do more to restore the public trust, I, I, th there, there is the makings of a deal. So again, 
we, we have seen the, the, the gridlock in Washington, but I have also been here for moments where we get incredible things done that people think, don't think we can do. I was struck by the fact that you said that, I think it was just last week you said, there's an understanding on the other side of the aisle as well that this is a moral moment. And you really think this time something, some part of the George Floyd Act can get through. So we'll I, watch. I, I really feel that. We are, we, we are Americans who share more of the same heart than we know. And uh, that's, that's where my hope lies. Thank you. Thank you. Always good to see you. Really good, good to see you. Very, very Thank you. Finally. Six months, eight months till I'm invited back? I, if we've been doing this show for three years. Where have you been? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Senator Don't Parker. you think that's a nice jacket? I, 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 you know, Don's always outdressing all of us. It was easy to find him when I walked on this floor. <laughs> you see him directly across yeah, the rotunda. Exactly, exactly. Senator Booker, thank you thank so you, much. Thank you, much. thank you very much. All right, also this morning, LeBron James overnight breaking the NBA's all-time scoring record. We'll give you the highlights ahead of that if you missed it while watching the State of the Union tonight. What do you right? think of that, Corey Booker? More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. Let me give you, anybody who doubts it, contact my office. I'll give you a copy. I'll give you a copy of the proposal. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Capitol Hill. To the balcony here. Listen, uh, it was. Today. <laughs> I know it was very interesting watching. I was, I was just asking Caitlin as I was playing. Had you ever been as a White House correspondent to the State of the Union? You say you're always at the White House. Yeah. Yeah. And you've been watching them. I don't know if I've ever seen one like that to have the reaction. I remember the whole "you lie" moment with President Barack Obama, but I don't know if I've ever remembered one like that. I think what's so different in those two moments is the reaction. Because yes. when the "you lie" moment happened, everyone was kind of stunned. Last night, it was like, "Well, that was lively. That was feisty. Yeah. It was almost expected." Yeah. Yeah. The president trying uh, to cut through all of the noise and heckling from Republicans. Did he get his message across? That's the question. We're going to break down the highlights. We're going to fact check the president's claims. And we're going to speak to lawmakers on both sides of the aisle. Plus this. The all-time leading score. You have witnessed it. LeBron James. You went to sleep after the State of the Union and missed this moment. Watch now. It once seemed like an impossible feat, but LeBron James has now scored more than more points than any other player in NBA history. Does it make him the greatest of all time? Yes, we know the answer to that. We'll have more on it in a moment, though. There was a lot to watch on television last night, <laughs> there right? There certainly was, but also an update on the tragedy. Uh, families still trapped beneath the rubble across Turkey and Syria this morning. More than 48 hours after that catastrophic earthquake, we will take you live to the search and rescue operation as the death toll surpasses 11,000 people. But we're going to begin with the whole reason that we're here on Capitol Hill with last night's State of the Union. It was President Joe Biden's first speech in front of a divided Congress, and it showed. Some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. Let me give you anybody who doubts it. Contact my office. I'll give you a copy. I'll give you a copy of the proposal. 
That means Congress doesn't vote. Well, I'm glad to see you. No, I tell you, I, I enjoy conversion. Look, folks, the idea is that we're not going to be we're, we're not going to be moved into being threatened to default on the debt if we don't respond. <laughs> Folks. So, folks, as we all apparently agree, Social Security and Medicare is off the, off the books now, right? They're not to be sponsored. Folks, my economic plan is about investing in places and people that have been forgotten. So many of you listened to me tonight. I know you feel it. So many of you felt like you've just simply been forgotten. Americans are tired of being. We're tired of being played for suckers. So pass. Pass the Junk Free Prevention Act so companies stop ripping us off. Speaker, I don't want to ruin your reputation, but I look forward to working with you. <laughs> when police officers or police departments violate the public trust, they must be held accountable. Yeah. Folks, it's difficult, but it's simple. All of us in, the cha in this chamber, we need to rise to this moment. We can't turn away. Let's do what we know in our hearts that we need to do. Let's come together to finish the job on police reform. Do something. Do something. Ban assault weapons now. Ban them now. Once and for all. Fentanyl is killing more than 70,000 Americans a year. Big. You got it. So let's launch a major surge to stop fentanyl production in the sale and trafficking with more drug detection machines, inspection cargo, stop pills and powder at the border. Make no mistake about it. As we made clear last week, if China threatens our sovereignty, we will act to protect our country, and we did. As we do with the State of the Union, we fact-check it. So join us now. Some uh, We're going to do the remarks of the president's claims. And Daniel Dale is here to do that. Daniel, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. So uh, President Biden boasted about cutting the deficit last night. Take a listen. In the last two years, my administration has cut the deficit by more than $1.7 trillion, the largest deficit reduction in American history. Daniel, is he right? Don, this boast about cutting the deficit leaves out such important context that I'd say it's misleading, even though his numbers are right. It is true that the deficit declined $1.7 trillion in fiscal 21 and 22 compared to fiscal 2020. But here's the key. Experts have consistently told CNN that Biden is taking way too much credit for this decline when he suggests his own administration is responsible. In reality, that decline overwhelmingly occurred simply because temporary pandemic spending from 2020 expired as scheduled. And not only that, 
Experts tell me that Biden's own actions, his legislation, his orders, have on the whole significantly increased deficits. Dan White, a senior director of economic research at Moody's Analytics, which is a firm Biden has repeatedly cited, told me this. On net, the policies of the administration have increased the deficit, not reduced it. How much? Well, the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, an advocacy group, estimates that Biden's actions will add more than $4.8 trillion to, de- to deficits from 2021 to, through 2031. And that group's president, Maya McGinnis, told me before the speech, the White House deserves credit for the $250 billion of deficit reduction they enacted through the Inflation Reduction Act, but should also take responsibility for the $5 trillion of deficit-increasing policies they signed into law or executive order. Now, Biden can take some credit, Don, for the economic recovery, which has boosted tax revenues. That helps keep the deficit down. But overall, what he's done has made the deficit bigger, not smaller. Don? So, Daniel, he's also claimed that his predecessor accumulated a lot of debt. Listen to this. Nearly 25% of the entire national debt that took over 200 years to accumulate was added by just one administration alone, the last one. Fair claim, Daniel. It's more fair than the last one. Again, his numbers are correct, but there's still some important context missing here. In short, Don, Trump wasn't solely responsible for the debt increasing during his tenure. Under Trump, the debt did rise by a quarter. It's now above 31 trillion. It went up by about 8 trillion under Trump. Some of that was definitely Trump's own doing. His unfunded tax cuts were a major contributor. But a big chunk of the increase was the trillions in bipartisan COVID spending. That's when the big Trump era spike in the debt occurred in early to mid 2020. Also, as always, some of the increase was because of spending that is mandatory because of decisions from previous presidents, from Medicare and Medicaid in the 60s to President George Bush's prescription drug benefit to Obamacare. So the debt blame game is common to both parties. It is tradition. But the reality is more complicated than just like the debt belongs to the president. Don. All right, Daniel Dale, thank you very much. Always keeping us up on all the facts. Let's bring in South Carolina Congressman and Assistant Democratic Leader James Clyburn for his reaction. Good morning, sir. It's so nice to have you in person. Well, thank you very much for having me. All right. Did we just see the beginning of Biden's run for 2024 last night? I think so, and certainly hope so. Uh, Let's finish the job. Uh, I thought that was a great refrain, and I do believe he's laid a tremendous foundation for doing that. Uh, and I think the American people is going to respond very positively. I think I saw some of what you all said this morning, that um, from the beginning to the end, uh, among independents, his, uh, his approval went uh, way up. 72 percent. Uh, this is for a positive reaction to the speech last yeah. night. How did you use so you graded? Oh, oh I th- well, I'll give him a little more than 72 yeah. percent. I thought it was the best effort I've seen from him in a long, long time. You know, I do a lot of speech making myself, not nearly uh, on the level that he does. But you know, when you're speaking to a group and you get heckless, um, the way you respond to that, I think, is demonstrative of what kind of person you are. And I saw in him last night uh, the kind of maturity that the American people would like to see in a president. He took on the hecklers, let them have their say, gave them a nice little smile, and responded in a very positive way. You brought that up without us even prompting you. Why? That must have been on, that's on your mind. Why? That's exactly right. You know, because, you know, uh, I think unfairly so, uh, he gets a lot of flack from people uh, about not being able uh, to do well when he gets off script. Uh, he went off last night, did extremely well, came back on and continued uh, to pursue his agenda, which I think is a great agenda. Do you think Kevin McCarthy should say something to his members about that? 
I understand that he did say something to them about it beforehand, uh, and they didn't listen. Uh, when you're dealing with kindergartners, uh, it's kind of hard to get them to to listen. Just what do you? How do you think that makes him look? Because uh, that, look, Caitlin pointed out earlier. I mean, you were Nancy Pelosi, who was like, you know, she was sort of, um, I should say, Speaker Pelosi, the former Speaker uh, Pelosi. Um, would calm some of the members down, but not. It doesn't seem like it was in this fashion. Well, how do you think this makes him? Well, uh, no, Nancy's never had to calm us down. Uh, Nancy, we had discussions beforehand uh, about how to uh, respond to certain things and uh, whether or not we should. But I don't know. Pardon me. But weren't there moments during the State of the Union where she would say she would look and say, "Don't do that," especially during President Trump? Uh, probably so. Yeah. Uh, I don't That's remember. What I'm oh yeah, about. sure, sure. But you know, uh, we don't heckle. I, I don't remember a Democrat ever heckling uh, a, a president uh, in the State of the Union or any other uh, matter. We may show a pre, uh, disassociation with uh, unappreciativeness of. Uh, we may do it uh, with a smile or non-smile, facial expressions. I sometimes uh, do it with my head, bow. You know, I bow my head to, to pray, and I sometimes shake my head to say I don't agree. But to heckle, I mean, that's not the way adults uh, act. Uh, you let the president have his say. You show your disapproval, but you don't heckle. Uh, you may not stand up. Uh, but yelling, uh, calling the president a lie, especially when it's not a lie. It is absolutely the truth. I've seen the document put out by Rick Scott. He didn't call his name, but I know his name. Uh, the former governor of Florida, uh, he was running uh, the Senate reelect stuff, and he put out a document calling for sunsetting Social Security and Medicare. And then Senator Johnson from up in Wisconsin said uh, we ought to do it every year rather than every five years that the document called for. Now, he said some Republicans want to cut Medicare. Those are two that want to cut Medicare, and that, to me, uh, made his speech all the worthwhile. I think they're, they're taking offense, if I'm um, um, correct here, if tying it to the debt ceiling is what they're I'm saying. Sorry. I think they're taking offense with tying that to the debt ceiling. Because well, it should not be tied to the debt ceiling. Okay. Uh, we didn't tie it to the debt ceiling. Uh, what they're trying to do is make room for the cuts. That's been done before. We understand the way this game is played. Uh, I think it was that uh, Gentrist was said, you know, I don't want to get rid of it. I'm going to uh, reduce it to uh, the level of being able to drown it uh, in the bathtub. He was talking about Medicare when he said that. I think we're out of time. We have so many more questions. <laughs> you, can, for you. Get, you can ask. Uh, didn't you have? Do you want to ask? No, him we're good. We appreciate you, and we hope you come back. Well, anytime. Nice to have you. My in office person. is just below us. Looking <laughs> debonair this morning, right? as they say. Well, thank you very much. He said he was there. trying to keep up with. <laughs> Everyone yeah. tries to keep up with Don. Absolutely. I'm following in his footsteps. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank it's you. always a pleasure thank to see you. you. Thank you so much. Thank you. So you heard it earlier. Republicans were outraged and heckled President Biden when he accused them of wanting to cut Social Security. We just talked about that a little bit a second ago. Coming up, we're going to speak to Republican Congressman Ryan Zinke, who says that the president was either lying or having a memory slip. You don't want to miss that.
President Biden delivering his lengthy State of the Union address last night, but he did go off script as he was talking about oil and demand. He was talking about record profits for oil companies as he started riffing on how long he believes the United States will be oil dependent. Listen for what Republicans said at the end, how they responded as he was talking about conversations that he's had with oil executives. And when I talk to a couple of them, they say, we're afraid you're going to shut down all the oil wells and all the uh, oil refineries anyway, so why should we invest in them? I said, we're going to need oil for at least another decade. And that's going to exceed <laughs> and beyond that. We're going to need it. Joining us now is Republican Congressman Ryan Zinke of Montana, who also served as the Interior Secretary under former President Trump. That was not supposed to be a laugh line, but it was for many of your Republican colleagues. What was your reaction to it? Well, this suggests we're not going to be in the fossil fuel world uh, more than 10 years. Uh, it's just untruthful. Uh, so there, because it was an outrageous statement. Uh, fossil fuels are, are with us as a part of the economy, and they're going to be with this economy. Uh, but to blame the problem on the executives. Look, we have high energy costs. It's not because of the oil companies. It is because of this, the policy of the president. We have high inflation because it's the policy of the president on spending. So if you, if you look at high energy costs, which we're all seeing, high inflation rates, which a lot of it has a result of excessive spending, then, then we are in the economy we are. And I think that the speech itself, there, there, was, there was moments where accommodation where we're going to work with the Republican side, and I appreciate that. And, and he is my president, too, so I do appreciate that. But there were some blatant uh, mistruths that the Republicans, for instance, would terminate Social Security or Medicare. Uh, he said they wanted to sunset Social sunset. Security. And he said some Republicans want to sunset Social, Secu Social Security and Medicare. That is true that Rick Scott did propose that last summer. I know what we've said now. Well, terminating and sunsetting is, would, would say that we want to end it or, or not honor the protections and, and the benefit. That's not true. Uh, Speaker McCarthy had a conversation with Biden. He had a conversation with our caucus. That's off the table. The president knew it. Uh, McCarthy knew it. And the caucus knew it. And, and I think now the American public know it, knows it, too. Regardless of the debt ceiling, though, are you open to making changes to Social Security and Medicare? Because I was looking at some comments you've made recently. You said Congress needs to open up both sides, talking about mandatory spending, discretionary spending. You said there are some entitlements that have outlived their lifestyle that no longer produce results. Are those two of yeah, those? I, I think when you, when, you, when you look at it, everything should be reviewed. But when you put 72 percent of the budget and you lock it in the safe, said, we're not going to look at it. Uh, Look, when you look at discretionary funding, military, I think there's there's room for savings in the military too. Uh, you, you, you and that look, could happen with this uh, defense, this debt ceiling. You think some yeah, maybe cuts to I, defense I think spending? Everything should be looked at uh, and reviewed. Some programs, for instance, you can't pay people not to work, and a lot of the COVID still is happening where people aren't engaged in the workforce. As the president said, work is honorable. Uh, we should all strive to make sure we have a healthy economy, and that healthy economy is people working. So why they're not working, there's a lot, lot, probably a lot of reasons, but we can, we can join together and make sure America is prosperous and, and working is part of it. We want to make sure the Social Security system itself is viable and healthy. So you are open to changes to I'm, that. I'm open to re review and sitting down there in an honest dialogue because we need to protect Social Security. We, need, we have Medicare challenges. We also have this huge, looming, uh, fiscally irresponsible budget that has been, has been erected, and we continue to live under. So yes. that should be something we talk about with the budget. 
You know, I, I do. I, I think, okay. you know, and there's a That's difference easy. between the debt. You know, the debt is what we spent. So we owe that. We just don't want to, we don't want to be continuously overspending. So, and then this uh, forward, how are we going to spend the money? What's the priority? Uh, Ukraine is, is another, it's not a blank check. So I've always advocated for, you know, John F. Kennedy that we will pay any price, uh, bear any burden to protect the, the survival of liberty. But a blank check is extraordinarily dangerous. When we give arms and ammunition to a country that we don't know exactly where those arms and ammunition are, where they're doing, what they're for, what their end goals are, and what is our plan in Ukraine, that disturbs me. Well, the White House would argue they do know where the money is going when it comes to weapons and whatnot. But I want to move on to what happened in the House chamber last night, the heckling of President Biden from some of your Republican colleagues who disagreed with him. Did you think that was appropriate? You know, I was, I was born and raised to be a gentleman. And he is my president. I don't disagree with the statement. I disagree with the tone. Um, I think it, when you invite someone over to your house, you know, you're generally cordial. And, and he took some, some liberties, I, I think, on truth. But by the same token is he is the president of the United States. So I've always advocated, be a gentleman. Uh, we can agree uh, and we can disagree. But let's not be disagreeable because we are one country. Uh, this is your second time on the program. I covered you when I was covering the White House under former President Trump. I didn't get a chance to ask about you, ask you about this last time, but I do want to give you a chance to respond this time because uh, government watchdog said that when you were Interior Secretary that you misused your position, lied to investigators about your involvement in a Montana land deal, and that you broke federal ethics rules. Do you, what is your response to that, and would you do anything different if you're back in that position? In you know, what I, what I discovered D.C. is a pretty tough town. And look, I went through multiple investigations, and they all concluded the same thing. No wrongdoing, no violation of regulations, no violation of rules. But look, if, if you're going to press the city and make change, uh, there's a lot of people that are just comfortable with status quo. Don't, you know, don't, don't try to change. And my job was to change interior, and we did. We went from, on the energy picture, we went from 8.3 million barrels a day to 12.5 million barrels a day production. We were the world's largest producer of energy across the board. And it made a difference because gas was about two bucks a gallon. But when you try to make change, you know, in the military, uh, when you're over the target, you're going to get flack. So no regrets from how you handled that? Uh, you know, in some cases, I wish I would have been a little more aggressive. Uh, because the, the amount of change that needs to happen uh, in this town uh, is, is a lot. But, yeah, again, if you're over the target, you're going to get flack. Uh, the investigations were, were politically motivated and driven. We've seen some weaponization of some of our law enforcement, which is troubling. And, and look, our law enforcement needs to be blind of party. Uh, it needs to be the same for, for everybody, and that's the promise of this, this great capital and this great land. So I understand the politics behind it, but you know, moving forward is, look, I'm going to do my job. Uh, this year is going to be challenging. We have a lot of problems, border being one of them. Uh, let's secure the border. Let's make sure we have yeah. a, a budget that makes sense for us all. Well, I just thought it was important to get your response on that on the record. So, Congressman Zinke, thank you for weighing in on that and for the president's comments last night. Well, we appreciate your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, LeBron James is now the king of all time scoring. More than Kareem, more than Jordan, more than Kobe. But does this mean LeBron James is the GOAT? We have an investigation next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. 
Well, he's called King James for a reason, right? Now he rules the all-time scoring record. LeBron, one-on-one against Kenrick Williams, backing him in. Turns, shoots, scores! The king, LeBron James, has passed the captain, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and LeBron now stands alone as the NBA's all-time leading scorer. <clears throat> to be in the Staples Center, LeBron James broke the NBA scoring record in the third quarter of last night's game against the Oklahoma City Thunder. He did it in front of a cheering crowd filled with celebrities, including, of course, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the man who set the record 39 years ago in 1984. So, Jordan, now. That announcer was very dramatic. More dramatic than you, Poppy. How would, okay. Breaking the record! You, ta- you take it over, John Lennon. <laughs> I was giving you my greatest excited voice after sleeping three hours, getting up at three no, no, two in the morning. No, no, no. This was not, I was not comparing it to you. It wasn't a knock on you. I'm just saying the announcer was very, don't he you was think he was so like, oh, excited. We were so there, excited. David Aldridge is here. He's a senior Hi, welcome. You got yourself in the middle of this madness. He's all good. Senior college at the Athletic, right? Yep. Yeah, it's That's good right. to see you. 2016 Basketball Hall of Fame Court uh, Gaudi Media Award winner. Thank you for so much. That's just making fun of the But I, we, I loved this moment. I was saying earlier to, to Caitlin and Don, I also love that it happened to such a good guy who's done yeah. so much for so many people off the court. Well, yeah, LeBron is is a complete person. It's not just about the basketball with him. He's got his academy in Akron, Ohio, and he's putting hundreds of kids through school. He's done so many things. Speaks out on social issues. In a lot of ways, he is the torch carrier from Kareem because Kareem did it when it was a lot harder to do it in the 60s. Uh, spoke out on issues. He boycotted the Olympics in 1968 because of civil rights protests in the country at the time. So they are walking the same path both on and off the court. What do you, I mean, what does this mean though for the sports world to see that? We knew it was coming, but to see it actually happen, we actually all went to the Lakers game when they were in New York last week. It's remarkable still to see it actually happen and to see, you know, he had said he wasn't really thinking about it that much, but you saw how emotional he got. He when was, it was lying. <laughs> uh, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. It's, it's, it's one of the biggest records in sports. It stood for almost 39 years. I mean, that is a long time when you consider all the players that have played since, starting with Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant and all of the great players that have come through the league at, over those last four decades, and none of them really came close. I guess Kobe did, but but for LeBron to break Kareem's record, and Kareem is considered one of the greatest players of all time. He's won more MVPs than anybody in league history, won six NBA championships. I mean, he is on Mount Rushmore of the greatest of all time. So for LeBron to do that uh, really speaks to the incredible consistency of his career. He's, he rarely gets hurt. He plays all the time, and he plays at an incredibly high level, even at 38, 39 years old, as he is now. As you, you mentioned, you said Mount Rushmore, so maybe it's shared. Who's the greatest? Colby, uh, Jabbar, MJ, LeBron? You know, I get asked that a lot. Um, I've, I can only say, I can only talk about the people I've seen. I didn't see Bill Russell play live. People who did see him play live say he's the best. People who saw Will Chamberlain play live say he's the best. Of all the people I've seen, Michael Jordan's the best I've ever seen. 
LeBron's really close. <laughs> I grew up with that. Do you remember the Wings poster oh, of Michael Jordan? Sure. I grew up with that. Caitlin Stunn. She can't believe I had a basketball poster. <laughs> <laughs> right? A lot of questions for that. Yeah, exactly. But now oh, sure my though, kids will have the LeBron one. What Thank a moment. You. Yeah. Thank you for, yeah. for breaking it down with us. Thank you. Thank you. Good to see you. All right. Last night, Congress gave a standing ovation to the parents of Tyree Nichols. The question, though, that remains this morning is, will lawmakers, can lawmakers actually do anything about police reform? Coming up, we're going to have Tyree's mother and stepfather join us to weigh in their reaction. Most of us in here have never had to have the talk, the talk that brown and black parents have had to have with their children. Bo, Hunter, Ashley, my children, I never had to have the talk with them. I never had to tell them if a police officer pulls you over, turn your interior lights on right away. Don't reach for your license. Keep your hands on the steering wheel. Imagine having to worry like that every single time your kid got in a car. So that happened in the House of Representatives. The President of the United States acknowledging a family's pain and recognizing how discussions of policing differ on, along racial lines. The speech coming one week after the family of Tyree Nichols um, said their final goodbyes. So as the world knows, Nichols died just last month after being beaten by police in Memphis. The president honoring his parents, Ravon and Rodney Wells, at last night's address and calling for change. What happened to Tyree in Memphis happens too often. We have to do better. Let's commit ourselves to make the words of Tyler's mom true. Something good must come from this. All of us in, the cha- in this chamber, we need to rise to this moment. We can't turn away. Let's do what we know in our hearts that we need to do. Let's come together to finish the job on police reform. Do something. So joining me now for the first time since the State of the Union attending, that's a State of the Union and being so dignified there, Tyree Nichols' mother, Ravon Wells, and Tyree's dad, uh, Rodney Wells, um, and Nichols' family attorney, of course, Benjamin Crump. Ben, and uh, Mr. and Mrs. Wells, I'm so happy to have you on. I, do, I just have to say good morning to you. I'm happy to have you on because I know that last night was important to you. So Mrs. Wells... How are you doing? How did it feel being there in front uh, of a national audience with the president of the United States and lawmakers speaking about the things that you said you wanted to accomplish in that interview I did with you a week ago? Um, It actually was amazing. I want to start off first by thanking the president for even acknowledging my son on a high platform the way he did. So thank you, Mr. President. Um, it was it was really nice, Don. Um, that was a great experience for me. I've never been to the White House, and um, for him to speak um, about my son and acknowledge me, it was a great feeling. You said um, that some good was going to come of this. The president quoted you last night. Do you believe that, Ms. Wells? I actually do believe it. I mean, 
my son, my son, by him, my son didn't die for nothing. It has to be some greater good that's going to come out of this. Um, I, as I've said before, um, I feel like my son was here on a mission. Um, he might have been sacrificed for the greater good, but I do feel like some good will come out of this. Yes. The, pre the president speaking there um, about the talk that black parents have to have with their kids and how he never had to have that with his own children. And I was speaking to my colleague last night, quite honestly, Jake Taffer, and he said, this is something that white parents talk that they don't have to have with their kids. And those are the people who needed to be reached. And I said, not only do the parents need to be reached, but also the police officers. Having, hearing the president acknowledging having to have the talk, you know, black parents having to have the talk with their kids, um, it, it, that must have been sort of an interesting moment for you to witness there on the House floor. Yes, because they don't have to uh, speak to their kids uh, regarding police. You never see um, white kids being beaten or um, by the police. It seemed like you only see black and brown kids um, being beaten or killed by the police. So um, I thought that was great that he said that. And he acknowledged the fact that they don't have to have that conversation with their children. So by him saying that, that lets you know there's a problem and it needs to be addressed. Rodney, I want to ask you about uh, something that we talked about in our last interview, and that was both of you guys saying that you um, wanted the George Floyd and, uh, Justice and Policing Act passed. Um, and what is your message to Congress after listening to the president? My message to Congress is that if they had passed the George Floyd bill initially, my son may not have died tragically the way he did. So I think that Congress needs to get together, both parties, and get this bill passed so that no one else has to suffer the way we are suffering right now. Uh, it's a shame that there's such a double standard and we have to do something about it. But the first step is to pass the George Floyd bill. Are you optimistic with the divided Congress that we have right now? You saw some of the antics that played out. You were front and center to witness it. <clears throat> I have to be optimistic. Um, we have to get this bill passed. There's too many black and brown kids being killed at the hand of the police. And I mean, it's evident. Uh, we don't want to have another family going through what we're going through and the families before us that went through this. So. Uh, they have to get on the ball and get this bill passed as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. 
Ben, I want to bring you in here because there's more news coming uh, out of Memphis as it relates to the police officers, uh, uh, police officers charged at admitting to investigators that he took one of the police officers, that he took photos of Nichols on his personal cell phone, sent one to others after he was beaten. That's according to published reports citing a, a newly obtained document. What do you know about that, Ben? Well, Don, uh, some breaking news for you all today. We uh, talked with the district attorney, and he told the parents that they did something they normally don't do. They put a public statement out to address those rumors as having no validity based on everything that they have researched. And they wanted to ease the family's uh, grieving process because, you know, dealing with these rumors after you lose your child is just so unfair. And so hopefully we can put this stuff to bed and focus on the fact that this was a culture, this was a pattern in practice, this Scorpion unit, and that had that pattern in practice been addressed through the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act or by the Memphis Police Department, Tyree Nichols would not be dead today. Well, Ben, I was referring to, I just want clarification, I was referring to one of the officers charged admitting to investigators that he took photographs, but you, you mentioned rumors. I'm not exactly sure what you're talking about, it's just for clarity. Uh, I want to, yeah. if you can update our viewers. Certainly. Certainly. The district attorney said they were aware of all these rumors about this was some kind of personal attack. He said they have found nothing to substantiate that. It reminds you of when Botham Jean was killed in Dallas, Texas, in an apartment by the uh, white policewoman who said she came into the wrong apartment. And the Internet just started talking about all these rumors that they were having an affair. And their family had to deal with those rumors while they were trying to uh, deal with the tragedy. And people need to stop spreading these rumors and these, you know, just salacious things to even add to the pain of the family. So the district attorney, Steve Murroy, said that he wanted to let the family know they looked into this and they found no such evidence. All right. Uh, thank you for responding to that. And, and finally, um, Mrs. Wells, I just want to know that you had the national stage last night uh, with the President of the United States. What do you want to say to people now as far as it relates to your son and legislation and what needs to happen next? What I want to say is we just need to get this bill passed. As we mentioned earlier, it's just too many children being killed by police officers. And I met a lot of the mothers yesterday when I was in Washington, and it just saddened me to hear all the stories uh, that these women were telling me. And we really need to get something done here because this is just really getting out of control. And if they don't do anything, um, the government, then they're showing me they have no humanity and that they're not for the people because I am part of the people. So you need to get off your butts and get this bill passed.
because we can't have any more kids. Uh, we can't have another Tyree. We, we just can't have that anymore. Amen. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ravon Wells, Rodney Wells, Ben Crump, uh, all three of you have handled yourself with dignity, especially with you, Mom. I can't imagine the pain that is on your heart. I don't think anyone can. The whole nation is with you. I've been telling people you've become America's mother. Um, it's sad that under thank the circumstances you. that you had to become America's mother, but thank you for being so dignified, so graceful, um, and we appreciate you. Thank you. And we're thinking about you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Don. Thank, thank you, Don. Thank you, Don. Mm -hmm. thank you. We'll be back in a moment. All right, we want to take a moment to update you this morning on what's happening overseas. More than 11,000 people, 11,000, that is not a typo, have been killed in the devastating earthquake in Turkey and Syria. The images are striking as crews have been racing to find survivors beneath the ruins. Perhaps the most striking are the images of the children from moments of elation as some were found to despair. Take a look at this father in Turkey. He is holding the hand of his 15-year-old daughter. She died as a result of the earthquake, still lying beneath the rubble. You can see a mattress. It's likely she was sleeping when the quake hit, as so many of them were. The father not letting go of her hand. These are the heartbreaking cries from another father. My <laughs> father is weeping as he is holding his newborn in Syria. Unfortunately, the baby did not survive. As always, though, there is hope. This newborn baby girl in Syria found alive with her umbilical cord still attached to her mother who was killed. She's the sole survivor of her immediate family, and we are told this morning she is receiving treatment lying in an incubator at a hospital. And here's another image. That is a young girl comforting her little sister, shielding her from the dust, but they are alive. A little girl who looks to be in her pajamas rescued from the rubble, she is alive. And then another little girl pulled from the rubble in Syria beneath slabs of concrete that had fallen on her. She too survived. It's almost too much to take. A little boy rescued from the ruins in Syria and this moving moment when an entire family is pulled out alive. So much tragedy, it is the moment of pure elation that those rescue crews needed in the middle of so much death and destruction. A good reminder, there's always hope, and we're thinking of all those still trapped and all those working tirelessly to save them. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. 
Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.